أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وكل المؤمنات يغضن من أبصارهن ويحفظن فروجهن ولا يبدين زينتهن إلا ما ظهر منها وليضربن بخمرهن على جيوبهن صدق الله العظيم We are on Surah Nur Surah Nur verse number 31 Before I begin this verse However a couple of leftovers From yesterday Yesterday we were talking about the Had punishment And I had mentioned that there are three types Of zina And I only did two of them for you One is voluntary consensual zina Outside of marriage By an unmarried person Second was that consensual zina Done by a person who is married And third was the issue of zina bil jabr, rape. And I told you that rape is entirely different. Now I don't have time to give a whole discussion on this. Two, three times before I've given entire presentations on the Hudud, Pakistan's Hudud ordinances, Women's Protection Act, etc. I would just tell you one thing. Then deen of Islam, the punishment for rape, and the way a rapist is convicted, I want to erase one myth clearly. Not this is that four witnesses are not required to convict the rapist. So if a woman gets raped, obviously there are not going to be four men necessary. There will not always be four men who witness that. Have to turn that. Four, there will not always be four men who witness that. The only reason you would need four men to witness if you wanted to prosecute a rape crime, is if you want to stone the rapist to death. If you want to punish the person who is guilty of rape, if you want to punish the rapist, the other way, if you want to punish the rapist, by stoning, if you want to punish him by stoning, only then you need four male witnesses. Otherwise, if you want to do any other punishment you want, life in jail, 50 years in jail, 20 years in jail, add on top of that fines, community service. In fact, you want to use any punishment used in any Western country for rape, because none of them have this punishment, that they stone the rapist to death. You can take any punishment from any criminal system in the world for rape, and you can do, set up a system to convict that rapist and inflict that punishment on them, which does not require four adult male witnesses. This is in every single book of tafsir and hadith and fiqh. It was in the Pakistan Hudud ordinances and in Pakistan the criminal penal code. This was just a lie and a slander against Islam that a lot of the English language newspapers and certain NGOs and human rights activists spread. That oh, according to Hudud ordinance, or some of them took it further, according to Islamic law, if a woman is raped, you can't do anything to the rapist unless you find four adult male witnesses. No, according to Islam and even Pakistani law, which is not, they're not always the same, but in this case it actually happened that that particular section and clause of the Hudud ordinances and everything in Pakistan's black letter law is actually according to Islam, and that simply says that there's another category of punishment called ta'zir. And if, you, if there are four adult male witnesses, then yes, you can stone the rapist to death. And if there is not, you can inflict a tazir punishment on him. That can be based on the woman's testimony alone. It can be in the testimony of one woman. It can be on DNA evidence, surveillance videotape, 
any and every system that is used anywhere in the world to determine whether a crime has been committed can be used in Islam and in Pakistani law to convict a person of rape and you can inflict any and every penalty and punishment you want on that rapist except one which is the rajam stoning to death that particular punishment you can only do if there are four witnesses so much so I was once myself part of a panel and even though I explained this clearly after me, a woman who was a supposed human rights activist tried to scare the students and said that if a rapist was to walk into the female dormitory and rape one of you, you would never be able to do anything about it because there wouldn't be four witnesses there. And this is an outright lie and fabrication against the deen of Islam. Right? So that covers that. Second question about hudud is that, well, what about today? Two aspects to that. First, in terms of law. Well, yes, although we normally don't tell people this, and you people normally don't hear, listen to people like me either, so since this is a unique opportunity, actually in the classical books of Islamic law, had punishments are only supposed to be enacted when you already have established social justice and fairness in that society. You cannot inflict a had punishment. For example, until there's equity proper payment of zakat, proper distribution of zakat, every legitimate possible attempt to alleviate poverty, only then could you apply the hud punishment of cutting the hand for stealing. And if there is no social welfare system, there is no possible zakat, there is rampant poverty and no real tangible attempt by the government to lift that, then you couldn't apply the hud punishment. So similarly than the hud punishment for zina, First, you have to legislate the Islamic laws of modesty. You'd have to first legislate the laws that govern hijab, and which we're going to be doing today, gender interaction and hijab. And then if in a society like that, still somebody engaged in zina, then you can inflict the had punishment on them. Alright? Third thing, another aspect of... Another aspect of had today, is what if there's an individual person who either after listening to the tafsir yesterday or otherwise came to learn that there's a punishment for doing zina. So let's say there's an unmarried man and woman who did zina in the past and then made toba for it in their heart and has left that. Maybe even they've even gotten married now. But what if in their past life they actually did the ultimate, not the precursors, but the actual act of zina itself. So, let's say they say, okay, I've learned, Allah Ta'ala said, we did this very clearly, right? The ayah north was crystal clear about the premarital zina, right? And that no compassion should stop a person from inflicting that punishment. So if somebody was to ask, well, where do I go to get my 100 lashes? Hmm? Well, in this day and age, right, uh, there are three four different ways you can answer this question. First answer I already gave you, that in all likelihood that person did zina in a society where the Islamic laws of hijab and gender action were not enforced and therefore the Islamic law of had could not be enforced. So actually they will not get a hundred lashes. Second possibility is that no, the person can decide this themselves. That well, maybe, but I want to go through the punishment myself. So if a person wants to go through that punishment anyway, well, the second thing is there is no, at least in Pakistan, there is no recognized, recognized 
Islamic legal apparatus. I'm not saying recognized by the state, I'm saying recognized by the ulama. Right? You cannot have any shadow Sharia courts, you cannot have self-made qazis. There is no recognized process and apparatus by which that punishment could be carried out. So, if a person still insists that, no, I want that, I've made tawbah, but I don't want to get any punishment in the akhirah. And this is what Allah Ta'ala made clear, and you saw this yesterday clearly, right? That you have to make tawbah, and you have to get the punishment in this world to save yourself from the punishment in the akhirah. So if a person is so sincere and so insistent, then what we recommend such people is they should simply make a dua. And the dua they should make is, Ya Allah, you know and I know that I am worthy of your punishment because the hudud or hududullah, they are the punishments decreed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah ta'ala, you know and I know that I am worthy of your punishment. I am mustahik had whether it's whatever the punishment might be, depending on the crime. And then you should make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I want that you should be pleased with me. And if for you to be pleased with me, at some point in my life in this world, you would like me to get that hard punishment, then Allah Ta'ala, I want you to show me the way to, for that to happen. I want you to make that happen before I pass away. And if you can be pleased with me, without making that happen, Allah Ta'ala, that would be your karam and fazl and your mercy. But either way, I want for you to be pleased with me, and I want you to remove that sin from my record. I don't want to face the punishment for the sin in the next life. So then a person can make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Okay. Then, the gaze. So first thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said here was to women to lower the gaze as well. So I talked about this briefly yesterday, right? About lowering the gaze, and I guided you to a more detailed presentation that you can listen to on the internet by us on this topic. just want to answer a couple of questions. Number one, a person says that, well, a person claims that I don't get attracted. So if I'm not attracted, let's say maybe there's a particular person that they actually genuinely don't feel attracted to. So can I look at her or him, right, given that I don't feel the attraction? The answer is yes. Because law is law. Right? For example, if somebody says that I can drink alcohol and not get intoxicated, so can I drink liquor? You say, no. Allah Ta'ala said you can't drink liquor. It's the second thing whether you get intoxicated by it or not. Many times we used to give people this example, that imagine there's a race car driver. Imagine there's a race car driver. And so the speed limit is, what is it here, 120 km. And he's driving from Lahore to Sambal at 180 and the police pull him over. And he says, I'm a race, I professionally drive cars at 200 plus kilometer for a living. Believe me, <laughs> me driving 180 on the motorway will not cause any problems. They say, we believe you, you still have to drive 120 because the law is the law. We're not going to look at the reason behind the law. Even if we, you, we're 100% sure that you can drive safely at 180, you have to drive at 120. So if that is true for the raw man-made law, then this is going to be true for Allah's fountain made law. There's no space for aql and mantik when it comes to a clear, explicit command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Second, uh, for women, right? So for women, lowering the gaze means the same thing as we did yesterday. For men, that women should also avert their awareness, consciousness, focus, knowledge of anything that could create potential, possible, unlawful, lustful attraction for a member of the opposite gender outside of nikah. 
That may mean physically lowering the gaze. That may mean not being involved in certain activities or gatherings. That may mean not listening to a particular type of thing. Whatever it is, anything that can inculcate even a drop of unlawful lust to stay away from that completely and entirely, that is what by, meant by lowering the gaze. Alright. And now we move to then today's new set of topics. Which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran al-Karim, a second command specifically to women. So men just had this command to lower the gaze, then the women had a command to lower the gaze. Then the women had another command, that they should not expose and reveal, make apparent their beauty, except what on its own becomes apparent from their beauty. That's what it means. Because zahara, for those of you who are studying Arabic, that is mujarrat. So the fa'il of that is the beauty itself, as opposed to if it was if'al, it would mean what she makes apparent of the beauty. But it's not illa ma adharat. It's not except what she makes apparent. It's ma zahara minha, what the beauty itself manifests itself. What on its own becomes apparent from her beauty. That would be the proper way to translate this. Okay, so she's not supposed to do that. Second, she should draw her khimar over her breast. And I li- deliberately left that untranslated. Then again Allah says, Again, second time Allah says, and she should not reveal her beauty, illa except. So who are the people that she can show her beauty to? To accept, women cannot show her beauty except to their husbands, their fathers, their husbands' fathers, means their fathers-in-law, their sons, or their husband's sons, mean their nephews, or their brothers, or the sons of their brothers, sorry, husband's sons, their brothers, or their brother's sons, that means nephews, or their sister's sons, again nephews, or their women. Literally it says, O Nisa'ihinna. So I would just leave that as their women. O Mamalakat Imanahunna, or those women who were in bondage to them. O Ittabi'ina. Or those people who have no passions. This is in fancy English called a eunuch. This is the man who is castrated, right? Or the man who is born in such a way that they don't have uh, that ability physically or emotionally, right? Uh, or children, young children, very young children who do not yet understand and can comprehend. Uh, the concealment of a woman. Right. Then finally Allah Ta'ala gave another command. After she doesn't hide her beauty, after she wears her khimar, after she drapes her khimar over her chest, after again she doesn't hide her beauty except to certain people, then yet another command Allah Ta'ala gives women. Again the word zina. That means that they should not strike their feet or drum their feet on the ground to make known, to make apparent ornaments that they conceal, right, and to reveal the beauties that they conceal. Then Allah Ta'ala said, implying that if anybody had previously not followed this, 
If any man had not followed verse 30, or if any woman had not followed verse 31, that you should repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala altogether, O believers. What does it mean that this system is only going to work when all of you do it? When every woman dresses in this way, when every man lowers his gaze, when every woman lowers his gaze, when you all make tawbah together collectively so that this Islamic system of gender respect and gender interaction is instilled on society, only then will Islam properly meant the beauty and husn of Islam will only be able to manifest itself when the false and unlawful beauty is collectively hidden, right? So that you may indeed get success. Again, this is not an ugly thing for the Desi uncle to say, right? Hmm? No, that's not what's being said here. Allah Ta'ala is giving the way that it's also, it's an individual command, it's also a collective command. And those things that are collective commands in Qur'an must be enacted in society by the Islamic ruler, by the Islamic system. Right? Okay. Now we have to go back up and now try to understand what does this mean. So I'm going to give you a few pointers. What can we get from the Qur'an itself before we even move to Hadith and Commentary? Number one, that a woman has something called zinat, and number and Allah Taala has not mentioned that word for the men in verse thirty. No doubt, men can be handsome, but Allah Taala has used the word zinat only for women. So there is a particular type of beauty and allure that belongs only to women that does not belong to a man. I think all of the Western fashion industry would attest to this. Many times we give the boys this example that if you go to New York Auto Show, the annual car show in New York, it's only female models who are showing all the latest Mercedes and BMWs. There are no male models there. Even though modeling industry says that there are men who are handsome, but women have a zenith. It means their beauty has a lure and an allure. Such that if the woman is selling the product, Harvard and Yale business schools teach this in their marketing. There's a whole multi-billion dollar science of marketing and that is you should have a scantily clad woman marketing your product. Do not have a male model marketing your product. Why? The male model may be handsome. The female model is beautiful. But the female model has another thing in addition to her beauty is that lure, that allure, that attraction that it will affect their subconscious when they get attracted to the picture of the woman on the billboard. They will get attracted to your product. This is a multi-billion dollar global fact of advertising and marketing. So they actually have understood. It looks like they've read Quran. <laughs> yes, that women have a zenith that men don't. Alright? Okay. This answers the question that why are there different rulings for men and women? Why don't men have to wear niqab? <laughs> right? Okay. So women have a zenith. So that zenith is that you can then translate this as the allure of their beauty, the attraction of their beauty. So what does Allah SWT say about that? The allure and attraction of their beauty? They should not reveal that. Not reveal that. Except to their fathers and uncles and all of that. So second thing now you get from Quran, guaranteed that a woman's, Muslim woman's dress code must be different in front of her father 
from that in front of her professor or a public man, right? So if there's a woman who says, no, the way I dress at home is exactly the same way I dress at university, it means she's not following this eye. This eye is making it clear that there's some zenith that you can show to your father and your brother and your nephew and you cannot show that to other men. So it means there are two dress codes going on. So every woman has to ask herself, am I doing amal on that Quran? Or do I have one dress code? Whatever I show here, I can show there. So there's clearly something there, right? Okay. Next thing that is clear, that Allah SWT said, إِلَّا مَا ظَهَرَ مِنْهَا That beauty that you should not show in public, should be all of your beauty, because this is mutlaq, illa means an exception of what becomes apparent in of itself when you are in a public place. Alright? Okay. And then the next thing is that they have to drape their khimar. So now let's go through these issues one by one. So first is the concept of aura. Aura in Arabic language means a person's nakedness. Right? What is defined as a person's nakedness? This is true for men and women. So for a man, the nakedness of a man is defined from their navel to their knees. Right? Okay? Means you always, even in front of other men, right? Let alone in front of women, other than your wife, you always have to be covered from your navel up to and past and including your knees. Right? So that's the first thing. And this, but as you know, and this will make you understand. Did Sahaba Ikram have a farz only concept of Islam? Is this your concept of Sahaba that all the time they were walking around in towels or knee length lungis and that's how they prayed and that's how they delivered Jummah khutbah? No, right? There's no way you can think that Sahaba dressed just like that. So it means that deen is not just about farz. When we tell you something that is bare minimum, emotional response of a believer is not that I'm going to follow just that bare minimum. Remember that in a moment. At the very end, I'm going to mention this again when it comes to the dress code of a woman. For a woman, the aura is different when she is in her own home and when she is in public. When she is in her own home, it's also different whether she is praying salah or she is outside salah. So let me, I cannot explain all the details of this, so I'm going to, and it's different between women in front of men, men, the pertinent things I'm going to do today. Number one, what is the aura of a woman inside Salah? What should a woman cover of herself when she's wearing Salah? I will just summarize this to you from numerous ayat and ahadith, that a woman has to cover everything in prayer except for her hands, face, and feet. Right? And the woman must cover her hair inside Salah also. Even if she's in her own home, even in the privacy of her home, even in the corner of the corner room of her home, she must cover her hair inside Salah. Just to quote you, one hadith Sayyidina Rasulullah said, this is narrated in Abu Dawud and Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah and other collections, that Allah SWT does not accept the Salah of a woman who has attained the age of maturity Unless she is wearing a khimar. Unless she is wearing a, the same word that is used, your khimar. And khimar means head covering. I'm going to establish that shortly. Right? So she must cover her head. She must cover her hair. Everything except her face, hands and feet must be covered. Right. 
What is the face? The face is from the hairline up to the bottom of the chin, vertically, and from ear to ear, horizontally. That is called the face. So it means that she has to not wear a loose scarf draped over her hair, but where her neck and her top part of her chest is visible. No, she has to cover all of that except for the actual, what I just defined as a face. I'm mentioning this because unfortunately many women, not due to any reason whatsoever other than laziness, right? Because we're talking about inside when she's praying salam, not talking about how she has to dress out there, right? Just due to laziness they don't follow this command. And they should reflect on the words of Sayyidina Rasulullah Allah does not accept prayer unless a woman wears a khimar, wears a, something that conceals every strand, her entire hair, and her neck, and her shoulders, and everything other than what we mentioned as her face. And she must also be wearing clothing up to her wrist and up to her ankle. Her upper garment, sleeve, should reach up to her wrist, and the lower garment should reach up to her ankle. So that covers the aura inside the prayer. Next is the aura outside the prayer. So let's see what is going to govern this. The emotion that governs how a woman will dress outside the prayer means two categories, in front of her mahram men and in front of other men. Mahram, by the way, means that man that is haram, hence mahram, that man who it is haram for her to ever marry. Ever, ever marry. She could never marry that man. There's no case, situation, scenario in which Islam would ever allow her to marry that man. That is called a mahram man. And that was the list that we recited. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recites in Quran al-Karim. Alright? Okay. General number one teaching to keep in mind is Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa hadith in Bukhari and Muslim Al-Haya'u Iman Al-Haya'u Minal Iman Al-Haya'u Shu'butu Minal Iman Al-Haya is different wordings and different narrations Haya, modesty and chastity and shyness is part of a person's Iman So obviously the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa apply to Mu'minat So the governing feeling is what is that modest dress? What is going to constitute modesty in her dress? Right? Okay. In front of her mahram men, she will be able to show her, in front of her mahram men, such as fathers and sons and brothers, she can show her hair, her entire head and face, and her neck, and her shoulders and arms and forearms, and legs below the knees. Below the knees. Right? There's some difference in scholars about the extent to which her chest or stomach or back can be shown, more precautionary position would just be that one should not reveal the chest or back or stomach at all. Right? That is her dress code in front of non-mehram men. Uh, in front of mehram men. In front of non-mehram men. So first thing that Allah Ta'ala said that she should not show her beauty. Right? Let me actually then, before I even come to that, because that, I'll do that at the end, this notion of hijab. Right? So the Arabic word that is used here, and yes, it is correct, when certain popular speakers on TV love to say this sentence, that nowhere in the Qur'an does, has Allah Ta'ala said word for word in Arabic that a woman must cover her hair. Absolutely correct. All the ulama know this. You haven't told us something new. But if this is your approach to Qur'an, then that means what are you saying? This means that this you have established a principle. 
that unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions a body part by name specifically, a woman doesn't have to cover it. If you want to follow that principle, you may end up on nudism. Because there are so many parts that Allah Ta'ala has not mentioned by name specifically in Qur'an. So just the fact that Allah Ta'ala never used the word hair does not mean that a woman does not have to cover her hair. This is a faulty reasoning, this is a fallacy. What is the word that Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala has used here in Qur'an? Khumr. Khumr is plural of the singular word khimar. Alright. Khimar in the Arabic language means head covering. Head covering. It doesn't even mean shawl or scarf because you could wear a shawl around your waist, around your chest, around your shoulders. The Arabic word khimar means head covering. That's what the word means. Alright? Okay, how can I prove this to you? There are major Arabic dictionaries known as lexicons, logat, that can think like Webster's or Oxford Dictionary of the English Language. And the three major ones are Zabadi's Taj al-Urus, Mutarazzi's al-Mughrib, and Fayyumi's al-Misbah, and number four, al-Fayruz Abadi's al-Kamus. All four of them define khimar as a head covering. One of them is even written by Christian. Arab, because they were some early Arab Christians, so nothing to do with religion. It's a language. The Arabic, in the Arabic language, the word khimar means head covering. And all of the four, and there are only four, all of the great floor classical dictionaries, all of them say khimar means head covering. Now imagine if in American law, in the Constitution, there's a word, and Webster's Dictionary, Oxford's Dictionary, all the great classical English dictionaries say there's only one meaning of a word in the Constitution. Can any lawyer argue and say, no, no, this word doesn't really mean that? He'll be thrown out of court. He'll say all of English language agrees that the meaning of this word in the Constitution is X. Well, just like that, all of Arab language agrees, Arabic language agrees that the meaning of khimar is head covering. So much so that in Taj al-Urus, he has even mentioned the turban can be called head covering, which is something a man wears, right? Because it's not exclusive, the word head covering is not exclusive to women. Even the turban can be called as, turban is normally as imama, there's a separate Arabic word for that, but it will be called, it can also be called khimar. Right? Okay. Even the greatest English language, Arabic English dictionary, which was made by William Lane, even in Lane's Arabic English lexicon, he also, following the classical Arabic scholars of linguistics, he also says that khimar means head covering. So what does it mean then the way to translate this verse properly, which very few people do, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, and they should drape their head coverings, which they're already wearing, over their chest. So they're wearing a head covering. I can show this to the women since Janal Bali is having one. So one way would be to wear it the way he was wearing it, which is just like this, right? And draping over your chest means they should take their head coverings and go like this. That's what Allah is saying in Quran. Right? This is the word-for-word Arabic meaning of this verse. There is no other meaning that even is remotely possible within the Arabic language. And Allah Ta'ala has said in Qur'an, Qur'an al-Arabiyya, this is a Qur'an revealed in the Arabic language. Alright? 
So that's what this verse means, that they must drape their head coverings over their bosoms or over their chests. One reason is that because in pre-Islamic Arabia, those women who did wear head coverings wore in that style in which their hair was covered, khimar, their hair and head was covered, but neck and ears and chest and all of that remained exposed. Alright? So this is the Arabic language meaning of this verse. Just to show you that the scholars of classical tafsir, Imam al-Qurtabi, who is one of the greatest mufassirun of Quran, has specifically said this, that women in those quote, women in those days used to cover their heads with the khimar, but they used to throw the rest of it on their back, almost like a turban, right? Hence the word khimar also being used for a turban. This left the neck and the upper chest, part of their chest bare, and this was the manner of the Christians at that time. That Allah subhanahu therefore commanded the believing women of the deen of Islam to drape their head covering khimar over their chest, not to let it hang in the back. Right? And Imam Ibn Kathir, who is also a great mufassir of Quran, has mentioned the same thing. So in other words, if the question is, why do Muslim women cover their head and hair? The answer is very direct, because Allah subhanahu wa has clearly, explicitly, unambiguously told them in Quran that they must wear a covering over their head and hair and drape that head covering around their bosom and breast. You keep in mind also that by a Muslim woman covering her hair, doesn't mean she's covering her mind. And for this one thing, to draw the ire and wrath of the feminists in the world, shows that they're not true feminists. Because real feminism is trying to elevate the value of a woman. right? And the value and the stature of a woman does not lie in her hair. <laughs> and if they want to suggest that the value of a woman lies in just showing her hair, then that means feminism is extremely pathetic philosophy. right? And that's not going to help women's rights in any way. So this is our deen, this is Qur'an, this is our Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We dress the way He wants us to dress. And you know, this has only become a debate in the 20th century. In the first, well, up till the, in the first 1200, 1300 years of Islam, this was a non-issue. This is viewed as such a minor, clear-cut, baby ruling. Who's going to even talk about this? There are much more important things to talk about in Qur'an and the deen of Islam. But because there's so much confusion today about this, people spend so much time on this passage. Alright? This is not the be-all and end-all of life. This is a very simple thing. Allah Ta'ala tells you how to dress what you should cover. Like I told you, we have to cover up to our knees. If you get into philosophical discussion with me, why can't I show my thigh? The other guys are not attracted to my thighs. The women's aren't going to be attracted to my thighs. I said, what's the matter with you? Just cover it up to your knee. There are more important things to think about in the deen of Islam. These are the hudud of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Remember? He sets the boundaries, the borders. Whatever He wants us to cover, we cover it. That's it. We just move on. It's so simple. Right? Doctors, when they go to a hospital and the medical code tells them that they have to wear this mask or they have to wear gloves, they don't get into arguments. That should the glove be up to the wrist or one inch past the wrist. Or whatever the hospital tells them, they just wear it. They accept the authority of the hospital over them. It's a simple matter. They're never going to debate things like that. Right? So it's not, it's not some major issue to be debated. And women are not in any way oppressed whatsoever by covering their hair, nor are they oppressed whatsoever by covering their chest. The only thing that is oppressed is lust will be oppressed by this. Modern fashion will find this oppressive, right? All of the people who want to spread zina will find such a thing oppressive. But otherwise there is nothing oppressive at all by doing this. 
There's nothing impressive about it. Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu narrates also the Amal of the Sahabiyat. And she says that by Allah subhanahu I never saw any women, when this verse was revealed, when Surah Nur verse 31 was revealed, and their men folk went back to them because the Bixim recited this verse in the masjid. So the men went back and they told their wives or daughters or mothers as the case may be that what Allah Ta'ala has revealed in this ayah of Quran. So every man, and she writes, each man recited it to his wife, daughter, sister, mother and relative. And then Amma Aisha says that not one woman, I mean from all Sahabiyat of Medina who heard this, not one woman among them remained except that she got up on the spot, tore up her shawl and covered herself from head to toe with it right and they prayed the very next fajr covered from head to toe that's literally what she says covered from head to toe so this shows you how did the female sahabiyat understand this verse because who are the greatest women scholars of quran the sahabiyat first the ummah mu'mineen ummahat women and second sahabiyat the Ummah Aisha is saying what the Amal of all of the women of Medina was in response to this verse. There can be no greater scholarship on the meaning of this verse. Alright. So the first aspect then that is crystal clear of covering their beauty is they must cover their hair, everything, neck, shoulders, chest, they must drape. And this is an accessory item, this is another piece of fabric. So a woman is already wearing her upper garment and a lower garment. That's two pieces, right? A top and a bottom. Now there's a third piece called khimar and she has to wear it that way. Right? Now, now this is beginning to cover her beauty. Right? Upper garment up to the wrist. Lower garment up to the ankle. Third garment, head covering, which is also draped around and covering the chest. Now I'm going to show you another passage of Quran where Allah has mentioned another step in this covering beauty process. And that is Surah Al-Ahzab, which is Surah 33, verse number 59. And you can, it's worthwhile to put this on the screen for those who are looking at the screen. Surah number 33, verse number 59. I'll just pause till you find it. Surah 33, Surah Al-Ahzab, verse number 59. Ya ayyuhan nabiyyu, O beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, قُلْ You should proclaim and ordain لِأَزْوَاجِكَ To your spouses, yani wives وَبِنَاتِكَ And to your daughters وَنِسَاءِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ And to all of the women of the believers Contrary to what some scholars on TV try to convince you that this command is only for the wives of the Prophet The Quran is so clear, crystal clear Even you can understand enough Arabic Say to your azwad, zoja, your wives, wabinatika, bint, your daughters, wa, and proclaim, no, ordain this order, nisa. All of you know what nisa means, women. The women of the believers. So, yes, say it to the wives, umahatu mu'mineen, azwad mutaharat. Say it to your daughters, say it to the Fatima Radana, etc. Say it to Zainab Radana, etc. And and to all of the women believers. So this is not a command just for the wives of the Prophet Anybody who says that has said an outrageous and outright lie against Quran. And you should not excuse them. You cannot say, oh, maybe they didn't know. If you don't know, you cannot speak on Quran. If you don't know chemistry, you're not allowed to teach chemistry. You can't even teach O-levels chemistry. 
The modern world will not allow you to speak unless you have a basis in knowledge. You cannot teach all levels chemistry unless you have the knowledge of chemistry. Why do you think it's excusable for somebody to speak on Quran when they don't have knowledge of Quran? So even if they said it ignorantly, it's a crime and a heinous crime to speak without knowledge about Quran. And if they didn't say it ignorantly, they knew, but they were trying to twist it to you. That's even more of a heinous crime. Such a person should be banned from all television, if you ask me. Yes. Nisa'il mu'mineen, the women of the believers. Now what should they be told? What should they do? Yudnina alayhinna min jalabibihinna. That they should draw, here you can say they should drape over them min jalabibihinna from their jalabib. Jalabib is plural of jilbab. So now you have yet another word that comes in Quran. This is clothing item number four for the woman. There's the upper garment. There's the lower garment, which is her, the dress that is touching her skin. There's first accessory additional item, the khimar. Now there's fourth additional accessory item, the jilbab. Allah ta'ala's ahkam al-hakimin. Two separate words mean two separate things. Alright? Dhalaka adna ayin yu'rafna. فَلَا يُؤْذَيْنَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا And this is more likely and better for them, right, that they will then be recognized and they will not be harmed in any way. And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa all forgiving, all merciful. Alright? Okay. So people twist it and say, no, no, that was just for the wise so they could be recognized. No, this is for the meaning all women. What is a jilbab? There comes another question, right? This is another item, another item. Okay. First, let us look at the dictionaries again. So, Lisan al Arab. Jilbab, it's plural of Jalabib. It is an outer garment. This is Ibn Manzur's Lisan al Arab, one of the famous classical Arabic dictionaries. An outer garment or a cloak with which a woman, which co- that covers a woman completely. It is a long outer garment and cloak that covers a woman completely. Sayyidina Ibn Abbas also said that Jilbab is a long cloak that covers a woman from her head to her feet. So what does Jilbab mean, right? Uh, you can call it in English a mantle, a cloak, a robe, a wrap, even a coat. Even a coat could do it, no problem. Some people today, so that's a different, in popular Arabic, khimar is now called hijab. Fine, no problem, you can call it whatever you want. In popular Arabic, Jilbab is now called abaya. No problem. Changing the label doesn't change the reality. Right? Doesn't change the reality. They used to call this a motor car. Then you called it motor. Is that a motor nikala? Then you started calling it car. It doesn't change its name. It doesn't change what it is. You can call it an automobile. It's still what it is. Right? Okay? So people today call it abaya. But that is what jilbab is. This is farad. This is farad. Khimar is farad. Covering up to in front in front of non mahram men, covering up to wrist fard, upper garment covering up to wrist fard, lower garment covering up to ankle fard, wearing a khimar covering your head and then draping that head covering over your bosom and chest fard. Number four, wearing an outer garment cloak, robe, coat. However, any fourth accessory item that is an outer layer that covers all of your clothing, your whole body, from top to bottom. That is also fard. So these are the four hundred percent guaranteed, irrefutable ways 
that Allah Ta'ala has told women to hide and conceal their beauty. Right? Again, we will show you how did that women do amal, which women sahabiyat. So again, another wife for the Prophet, Ummul Mu'mineen, Ummi Salma, Radilat Anha. She narrates that when this verse was revealed, that the women should drape their jalabib closely around them, so she said that the women of the Ansar came out as if they had crows over their head by wearing jalabib. What does it mean that they had wrapped themselves so much, right, in this entire extra wrap or robe or garment? And uh, let me give you another hadith in Sahih Bukhari. Umm Atiya narrates that we were, the Prophet told us to bring our mature women and screened women, which means covered or veiled women, to religious gatherings of the Muslims on the two Eids. So what did Nabi Islam say? That the women can come to Masjid Nabi for Eid, but not the children, the mature women who have attained puberty, and the ones who are veiled. That's coming later. And then, uh, and those who are in their monthly periods, they should, it's a separate issue, but it's part of the date, those who are in their monthly period should stay away from the Masjid. A woman asked, a Sahabiya asked, Ya Rasulullah what about a woman who doesn't have a jilbab? Means they were so poor, they were so poor, that maybe she had a 16 year old daughter, who she had a top garment for her, she had a bottom garment for her, she had a khimar for her, they couldn't afford the cloth for a jilbab. They asked to ask this question. The question is in Bukhari, clear cut. Ya Rasulullah what about the woman who does not have a jilbab? Can she also come to eat? Can she come to eat? Nabi Yusuf responded, Let her borrow the jilbab of her companion. And no, there's no way she can set foot out of the house without a jilbab. If she doesn't have one, she'll have to borrow someone's and then come. Makes it clear? <laughs> Makes it clear? This is crystal clear? So this is the amal of the sahabiyat. There are models. You know, like for a man, for the men, the sahabi ikram are their models. For the women, the Sahabiyat are their models. Why would a woman not want to do what the model Sahabiyat did and instead follow some guy who likes to lecture on TV? Right? Alright. So now you have this fourth item which is called Jilbab. You're going to see in a little bit that in Surah Nur, which is coming in the same surah that we're in, and an ayah that is coming a bit later, verse 60, it will give an exemption to those women who are so old that they're beyond desiring and beyond being the object of desire, that they may remove their jilbab. So this is yet another indication, however, that any woman other than that high level senior citizen age, which I would put at 70 years old, beyond feeling desire and beyond being the object desire, any woman other than that must wear her jilbab. And even for that category you will see, that and then even they, if they refrain, it is better for them. Even if they don't take it off, it's better for them not to take off the jilbab. Even for the, that's such an old woman that's coming in, the same Surah Nur, Surah 24, verse number 60. So obviously when she can take, told she can take off that extra layer of clothing, 
means this is an extra additional garment. Obviously, even old woman is not going to be told to take her clothes off and become naked, right? So the top garment, bottom garment is there. The zilbab is an additional extra outer layer cloak or coat, right? Uh, that in Surah Nur, might as well do it for you right now. Why don't you scroll and just show them Surah Nur because we're on the Surah, verse number 16. So those women, it literally means those women who are sitting. That they can never ever have any hope of ever getting married. Now this doesn't mean some 25 year old girl is depressed and thinks she can't get married. It means that that woman who is either sitting because she's been widowed or she never got married or she's divorced or whatever but she's reached an age now where there's no way she can ever get married. And here the ulama have interpreted nikah also to mean, those of you who study usul, nikah, bimanawati, it means that she's beyond the ability to feel or be the object of desire. Right? So for her, falaysa alayhinna junahun, that there is no harm on her, means it's permissible, an yadatna thiyabahunna, that she can remove those, it literally means clothes, but obviously it's a particular outer garment that she's been told to remove. Right? As long such that as long as she also does not expose her zinat. Alright? Such that it does not expose you can translate zinat here as beauty, some people translate zinat here as charms, right? Uh, but there is no blame if they take off their cloaks without displaying their zinat. So even here they can't show their zinat but they can take off their jinbab. Alright. But but if they don't do this, if they don't take it off, it's better for them. Wallahu Sameeun Alim, Allah Ta'ala is all hearing and all known. Now you tell me, if Allah Ta'ala is talking about a woman at that age and telling her that okay, yes, for you as a technical permissibility you can remove your jilbab, even then as long as you don't expose your zinat, and even then it's better for you if you don't remove it. So how could the young woman ever dream of removing her jilbab or not wearing a jilbab? So this is Quran al-Karim. And most people make the decision without knowing these verses. So all we ask, I cannot enforce anything on any woman, nor can any man or should enforce it on any woman. We want you to at least listen to Quran, see what Allah Ta'ala said. Don't listen to A, B, C, D, E, F, who is just talking from their aql and their mind. How can you decide your deen not looking at Qur'an? Look at these ayat in Qur'an where Allah talks about how women should dress. Decide your practice based on what Allah is saying in Qur'an. So Qur'an is clear on this issue. So now there's one thing that is left. Right? The big question. Right? One thing that is left. Right? But before I move to that one big thing, let me just make some comments about this. Now, if everything in life is a step by... And I'm talking to a certain level of people, right? Obviously, if I was speaking at Yama Shafia, I would tell those women to immediately, instantly cover from head to toe in all black without batting an eye. But giving I'm talking to a different audience, there's going to be a step-by-step process you're going to take, right? And these were the steps. So first step is what? To be clothed up to the wrist and up to the ankle 
Second step is going to be to be closed up to the wrist and ankle and wear a head covering that also covers your chest. Third step is going to be covered up to the wrist and covered up to the ankle and wearing a head covering that is also draped over your chest and wearing an outer cloak garment jilbab abaya that is fully flowing and loose from your neck to your ankles. Alright, and when you complete these three steps you will have now arrived on what Allah Ta'ala has commanded for women what is fard. Now you can do that in different ways, right? It's not necessary. Although, yes, some ulama have felt that black is preferable, but that's not required. So I would suggest for present company that they should wear somber colors, quiet colors, right? It could be a dark maroon, could be a dark navy, could be a brown, could be a dark green, right? Somber colors don't have to wear all black. And many of your mothers may be terrified if you wear all black. Even some of your mothers who may be listening, they will still be terrified if you wear all black. Right? Yes. At the same time, you don't want to go to such an extreme and get the most fashion designer burqa that you're actually more glittering and sparkling and beautiful than the arm woman who isn't even wearing an abaya. Right? So it should be simple, discreet. Why? Because haya. Remember the master emotion. There's one principle in Islamic fashion design for women. If they're going to wear that fashion in public, and that is called haya. In private, you, as far as I'm concerned, whether it's in front of your mahram men, or in front of the women of your household, you can get as dressed up as you want. Without, then there's one principle that governs that, that's called israf. That you don't want to be extravagant. You don't want to be spending thousands and thousands on tens and hundreds of thousands of rupees on dozens and hundreds of juras when there are people out there who remain unclothed. You don't want to do israf, right? But as far as beauty, let's say you have a few outfits that are extremely beautiful, that ornament and highlight every beautiful feature in you. If you want to wear that in the home or in any gathering in which there are no non-mehramen, completely fine. Islam is completely fine with that. Alright? But what's the principle? So the principle behind Islamic fashion design in that case, don't do israf. And as far as what's the principle in Islam behind fashion design for a woman as to what she's going to wear in public, ayah. So wear whatever. To wear whatever abaya is has the most haya. Yes, some may feel black has the most haya, but you don't always have to wear all black. Right? In this present company. If you are living inside a madrasa campus where the urf is that everywhere and wears black, then yes, even if you show up wearing blue, you might look odd. <laughs> right? But given that you don't live in such places, you should wear somber, simple, understated colors. Right? That should be neat, should be clean, should be presentable. Right? Okay. And you have to use wisdom. I will openly because I'm a very open person. Right? I will tell the parents. I tell you openly. If you stop your daughter from wearing khimar, you are committing a heinous crime and sin in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because for any mu'min to forcibly stop any other mu'min from doing amal on any ayah of Quran is a sin. So I'm pinpointing just this one ayah. For any believer to stop any other believer forcibly, whether that is physical force, and I have had cases like that reported to me. I once had a girl whose father beat her for covering herself. Yes. And the father thought he was doing the right thing. And he would argue like a lion in front of everyone. 
who challenged him. These people have not understood what it means to be a father. Father in deen means that man whose number one responsibility is to get his daughter into genital for those. That's what it means to be a father. Why did you think that father means that man whose number one responsibility is to get his daughter to Harvard? No. Father is that man whose responsibility is to make his daughter a waliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is that going to happen by forcing her to not do amal on Quran? Allah Akbar. Hmm? Father, it's not about giving money and food. It's not just about that. Certainly that aspect is there. I'm not denying that. But that's not the ultimate real father is the one who can provide Jannah for his daughter. Yes, he has to provide Dunya for his daughter. No doubt about that. Right? If you provide Dunya for your daughter and then you make her mahroom of Jannah. Hmm? Same thing for the mothers. Right? Any mother who says that to her daughter is against Quran. Daughters, if you have any parents like that, you have to have hikmah. You have to, yes, I will tell this clearly. Obedience lies to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone when it comes to faraiz and wajibat. There's no concept of obeying parents when they ask you to disobey Quran. But you have to do so softly, politely. You should not be rude. You should not argue. You should not be mean. You can wear certain other colors. Use wisdom to keep them pleased. And many times, I gave you some extreme cases of beating. Most parents are just worried for their daughters that aapke saath kaun shadi karega. Right? So leave that to me. May a call message Jo They're from your same social background and social status. Yes, there will be a better man who will want to your daughter. That man who wants to marry a woman who wears jilbab means that man is also thinking about Jannah, thinking about Allah subhanahu wa thinking about pleasing Allah subhanahu wa That man went out in the world and he took all the description of sahabiyat in his mind and he said, let me find that wife who is closest to this. That man is more likely then to have the description of the Prophet in his mind and be trying to make himself like that. And Sayyidina Rasulullah some was the best of husbands. Yes? The best of husbands. Okay? Alright. Now we move to the big, big question. Right? The big question. And, should, and so you should not force somebody to do it either. And you can't force somebody not to do it. Because really in Deen of Islam, yes, certainly there are things that parents should enjoin and command. But there is that aspect in Islam, no doubt. There's also that aspect in Islam that a mature, sane adult has to make the decision themselves for it to have kubuliyat in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And given that everybody in the present audience is 20 years or older, right? So a father sitting today cannot go home and force a 22-year-old daughter to wear jilbab. He can talk to her about it. He can share the verses about it. He can show how much he would love her if she did it. Right? He can try to get her to realize how much Allah Ta'ala would love her if she did it. But you can't force it. You can't force it. Yes, if you were living in an all-Islamic society, right, then you may take that stricter position that no, as a father I'm responsible, I'll be called to account for not forcing her. But actually what you were supposed to have done is raised her in such a way that she loved Jilbab. If you didn't do that, at the end game you can't force her. You've already failed. You've, it's, you've failed your duty in tarbiyah, right? You can't make up for that. So that's another problem that sometimes we have. Yes, I can accept that that's a social problem. That sometimes a man gets religious. 
in his 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, right? And before he, before that change, and it's a good change that Allah made that change happen, but before that change took place, he was living a different type of life and so was his wife. Now he, Allah Ta'ala, blessed him to change. He can't force that on his wife now. It's too late. It's too late for forcing. That's something that can be done with children, right? He can now try to invite his wife to the best of his ability. He can make dua to his wife to the best of his ability, but he cannot forcibly use force to make her wear a jilbab and a khimar. Alright? Okay. But I accept that others may disagree with that and others may think that no, it is the husband's duty to force the wife. Then they have to make their own decision and see practically if that works out for them. Okay? But I will suggest that if you force her in all likelihood, she'll, you really, she's not going to be able to do it from her heart. You're going to push her away. Push her away from what you really want is if she does it from her heart herself. Okay? Let me come to the last thing about women's beauty, which is the niqab. Does a woman have to cover her face? And in the last five or six years, the West, in terms of their government policies and in terms of the media, has given this issue a lot of attention. And the westernized elites in Pakistan also have given this issue a lot of attention. And that I can tell you, not just dozens, hundreds of cases of discrimination have come to my notice. People being taunted in university classrooms, teased by their professors, not been hired for jobs that they were qualified for, not hired for civil service and DMG because they wish to follow an Islamic level of dress. And of course it's not written, it's very skillful, unwritten, sly, underhanded discrimination that takes place in this country. Right? That is also a sin and should also be a crime under the law. And in fact in the West, discrimination on the basis of religion is a crime. It's amazing that the westernized Muslims of Pakistan have not taken anything good from the West. They only take the bad things from the West. And I will tell you in my experience, having met thousands of westernized elites in this country, uh, the level of discriminatory practices they have is just phenomenal. Phenomenal, right? Uh, things go on at universities here that would be, you would be fired for that if you tried to pull that at Princeton and Harvard. But the same Princeton and Harvard graduates come back here and engage in those discriminatory practices. Right? So yes, that is something you will face. If a woman starts doing khimar and jilbab, she will face discrimination. We can only hope that the reward will lie with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Niqab. Niqab means to cover your face. So let's go back to this ayah where we were in Quran, Surah number 24, verse 31. This is the big question, illa ma zahra, right? And the only options that could be here are feet, hands, and face. One of the three, two of the three, or all of the three. Because everything else has been covered now by the clothing requirement, the khimar requirement, and the jilbab requirement. The only thing that is left what is it that can be shown is face, hands, and feet. So I'll be honest and tell you, right, that there are two positions in ulama on this issue. One position is that the only thing that can be shown is the hands and the face, i.e. the face must, or the hands and the feet, and therefore the face must be covered. And there's another position that says, no, the hands, feet, and face may be shown but even that position says, number one, that if, however, there is fear of fitna, 
And as if a woman knows that a man is going to look at my face lustfully, then she must cover her face. And number two, if she doesn't know for sure that he will look lustfully, but she feels zanne ghalib, as opposed to yaqeen, there's a great likelihood that he will, then again she must cover her face. And number three, if she feels that no, there's not even zanne ghalib, that they will look at my face with lust, then it's highly recommended to cover the face but not fard. Those are the two positions. You have to define the positions properly. It's not like you, can, you have to cover it or you can completely reveal it. There's no position in classical shaf you can completely reveal it in any all places for any reason. One position is you must cover the face for at all times in all places in front of a non-marinum. Second position is that you know you don't have to cover it at all times in all places. But if there's yakin that you will, your face will be looked at at lust, then you must cover it. If there's zanne ghalib that you will be looked at with lust, you must cover it. And if there's not, there's just imkan, then it's not must for you to cover your face, but it's highly recommended for you to cover your face. And remember I said that the deen is not fard only. Deen does not teach you that you should only do what's strictly fard. Deen teaches you should do what's better, what's recommended. And if something is highly recommended, so that is what somebody should do. So that's the only difference between niqab. Is it outright obligatory or is it extremely highly recommended? That's the only discussion that can take place. Alright? Okay. Now let's look at this issue of zinat. Right? So what's the whole philosophy behind all of these commandments? Was that attraction should stop. Right? That's the whole purpose. From lowering the gaze, every single thing. From the lowering the gaze of the man, the lowering the gaze of the women, the khimar of the women, the jilbab of the women, and not revealing the zinat, every single thing was for one reason, that unlawful attraction should not take place. Now you tell me, rationally, or according to the West, or according to anyone in the world, what's the single most attractive part of a woman? It's her face, right? What do they put on the cover of every big magazine? Do they put the picture of her hand? Have you seen that on the magazine, the model's hand? Do they put the picture of her foot? It's her face. If you were to look at makeup, if you were to take all of the cosmetics and makeup, means all the cream, lotions, makeup that are used for the face, all facial products on one side, and everything else, the whole, every other cream used for the rest of the whole body, on the other side, Facial products will probably be still 10 to 1. So much effort to, why? To maintain or increase or augment the beauty of the face. You tell me when your mothers, if you're younger, or yourself, if you're already married, or your mother, when you were young once upon a time, went to go look at a potential bride for you, what was the number one thing that she looked at to decide whether she felt that that woman was beautiful for you to marry? Her face. If a woman zina does not lie in her face, where does it lie? Hmm? So Allah is saying, don't show your zinat, right? Yes, I, I say the word is not face, the word is zinat. But if you say zinat equals face, I'm not trying I'm saying if your heart testifies to you that zinat equals face, and Allah is saying this cover zinat, then you can finish the math. Right? You can finish the math. So that's another way. Another way for you to understand this issue of niqab, right, is that 100% guaranteed 
that all the Ummahat Al-Mu'mineen did it and 100% guaranteed that all the Sahabiyat did it and 100% guaranteed that all of the women of the Tabi'in did it and 100% historical, it's a historical fact that all of the women of the Tabi'in did it. In all likelihood, the first three generations of Muslim women would have the correct interpretation of this verse. In all likelihood, they would understand what that zenith is that Allah SWT is telling us not to be revealed. I will tell you also some popular speakers engage in a mass fraud and they suggest to you that no people used to cover their veil pre-Islamically and this was a pre-Islamic pagan Arab custom. No. That's just Pakistani talkers speaking to you on TV with they cannot quote a single historical reference. If you look at the books that non-Muslims have written about pre-Islamic Arabia, those women did not cover their face. In fact, both non-Muslim historians and Muslim historians know that that is called the age of Jahiliyyah where women walked around scantily clad and there was no concept of Haya and the women of the Quraysh and the women of Mecca were hardly wearing any clothes. That's a historical fact accepted by atheist historians. But I'm amazed you let a Pakistani speaker on TV get away with this and he tells you that no, historically, actually there were pre-Islamic custom to wear the veil and this was just a carryover. Okay, look at your own area where Islam spread in the history of South Asia, right? When the Mughals came and Islam, Islam came before that, but the more dominant, predominant Islam made people started covering where it's not the practice. If you look at even the pictorial epics of the Gitas and this and that, you will see depictions of women who do not have their face covered. When you look at the spread of Af- Islam to Sub-Saharan, i.e. Black Africa, and then women were doing niqab there, pre-Islamic sub-Saharan Africa, there's no concept of covering the face. So this also shows you that a change to take place. That when Islam came into a culture, civilization, women who were not covering their face, started to cover their face. So obviously this was part of their Islamic transformation. Alright? There are some hadith in which Nabi Karim Salaam has mentioned, uh, there is mention of Sahabiyat, uh, you know, covering their face. Uh, there's one in the Sahih Bukhari, one in the Sunan Mabdaud, one of the Mutima Malik. Uh, I'll give you an example one from Mutima Malik, Fatima bin Talmundar said that we used to veil our faces. He literally said that word for word. We used to veil our faces when we were in, in the company of Asma binti Abu Bakr. Alright, so this is, and she is not a wife of the Prophet saying that she was keeping her face filled. Why? Because the Prophet may come in at any time. Because the Prophet may come in, and I'm a Sahabiya, and I have to keep my face covered. Alright? Uh, another hadith in Bukhari and also Abu Dawud that there was a woman who wanted to speak to the Prophet. So she waited for him after the Fajr prayer, Sahabiya. When the Prophet approached her, he could not recognize her because she was completely covered in niqab. And the Prophet said to her, Who are you? And then she responded, Right? So the Sahabiyah, when she had to come in front of the Prophet without a partition, because there are many hadiths about coming behind a partition also, I'm not even doing that for you. When she had to come in front of him, he couldn't recognize her, he had to ask who she is. And it says she was covered with niqab. Another hadith in Sunan Abu Dawud, there was a woman who came to the Prophet after uh, Umm Khalid radiallahu anha. She was searching for her son, that perhaps he has been martyred in battle. 
And so some of the Sahaba said to her that you came here, and the literal words are, you came here asking for your son, looking for your son, while veiling your face. What did they mean by that? They meant that even when you were so distraught, you remembered to veil your face. They were praising her, that you've come out in this state of shock or searching for your son, but mashallah, you still remembered to come out in proper comportment and etiquette. Alright? And then when Sayyidina Rasulullah saw just so you know that her son got martyred and the Prophet told her that you will get the reward of two martyrs for your son. She asked why is that? It's very interesting. I'm not going to comment on this because it's not relevant to what we're doing but you can listen to these words. So the Prophet and she responded to the Sahaba that if I'm afflicted with the loss of my son I will, that will not let me lose my haya. That's what she said in response. I once saw some person on a website quote this hadith without the full hadith literally misrepresentation and so they quoted the first hadith and they tried to use this it was a woman actually she tried to quote this as a proof against nikah she said look a woman came out looking for her martyr and the sahaba said to her you're looking for your son have you even covered your face and she stopped the hadith there and said look the sahaba were surprised that why was she covering her face clearly the sahabiyat did not cover their faces such a fraud she didn't complete the hadith listen to the rest of these so yes, they asked her that. She responded. She replied, If I am afflicted with the loss of my son, I shall surely never let that make me lose my hayat. She replied. Can you imagine the fraud that is out there? You cannot imagine on this issue of hijab and niqab the fraud that people commit. That answer makes it clear, right? That that's her norm when she says that I won't lose my hayat just because I'm so worried about my son. Makes it clear what that writer posted on the web is a fraud and then the rest of the day so I can tell you then when she went to say he said that yes your son was martyred and then he said that your son will get the reward of two shaheed she said why is that so ya Rasulullah he replied because the people of the book killed him yes those who were shaheed from Ahli Kitab they make a double shahadat this is Sunan Abi Dawood hadith number 2482 if you want to look it up. Right? So, this is the issue of niqab. Alright? Again, everything else I said is true here about uh, not applying the force and about it's the ultimate final step and, like I mentioned, it's at, the, at its very least highly recommended. The niqab is something emotionally that now Muslims also find very disturbing. Hence the famous term in this society is they call them ninjas or fundos, or fundo ninjas, or mullani, right? And even parents call them that, even their friends call them that, even people who claim to be, you know, their friends call them that. So actually, the same thing I said about hair is true about the face. By covering of her face, a woman has not covered her mind, and she hasn't covered her heart. Allah Ta'ala wants even a man and a woman to be valued on their heart and their mind on their sifat, on their adab. Sifat means, these are two separate things, sifat means sifat of taqwa, sifat of haya, imani sifat, sifat of iman, sifat of sabr, sifat of shukr, and adab and akhlaq, the way they relate to people. That's who a human being is. Neither does her hair play any role in that, nor does her face play any role in that. Right? A woman's hair and face is irrelevant for a non-mahram man, Right? Yes, for her husband it is relevant. But for a non-Mehra man, he has no business. I explained to you yesterday. He has no business. Remember the rational argument I gave you? So rationality looks at what? 
What's the benefit? What's the reason? And what's the harm? Is there any benefit for a non-mehra man to be able to see the face or hair of a woman? No, zero. There is zero benefit for that. Second, is there any reason he should have to do that? Yes, now they've dug up this issue of identity for security. Whereas in the history of crime, there's not even been one case that was unsolved because of this. So this is a nonsensical argument. In the history of crime, there's not even one case that remains unsolved because of this issue. And you have plenty of women law enforcement officers that they are well entitled in their right to stop a Muslim woman at an airport or a station and take her aside and they can look at her face and check whether she is indeed the same person whose identity document she is carrying. We have no problem with that. Right? So there's no reason either for a non-mehram man to be able to see her face or her hair. Third, there's, is there harm? Is there harm? Good chance you might get attracted. You tell me, any man, if there's a woman who has a very beautiful face and you look at her face, what's the chance you will get attracted to her? The chance you will do something, that's separate. You may never do anything. But the chance that you may feel a feeling of lust, even a feeling of attraction. Yes, Allah Ta'ala does not allow that. You are not allowed to feel a feeling of attraction for a woman who is not in your nikah. So Allah Ta'ala didn't allow that. He's helping you. He doesn't want you to have a chance of doing that. Right? Then this issue of hair, I would just mention because I can't read all this to you. Some commentators who have said, right, that a woman should cover her face, scholars of Quran, I will just mention their names and their tafsirs, where to find it, obviously under this ayah. So you just open up the tafsir and look at Surah Nur and verse 31. Imam At-Tabri, who died in 310, Imam At-Tabrani died 360, Imam At-Samarkandi died 360. The names of this Imam at Tabrin is Tafsir al Kabir, Imam at Tabrani is Tafsir al Kabir, Imam al Samarkandin is Tafsir Behrulum, Imam al Mawardi is Tafsir al Nukt al Uyun, Imam al Baghwin is Tafsir Ma'alam al Tanzil, Imam al Zamakshiri is Tafsir al Kashaf, Imam ibn Atiyah is Tafsir, Imam ibn al Jazodi is Tafsir Zad al Masir fi Ilm al Tafsir, Imam ibn al Salam and Imam al-Qurtubi in his Ahkam al-Qur'an, Imam al-Nasafi in his Tafsir Madarak al-Tanzil, Imam al-Khazin in his Tafsir Khazin, Imam ibn al-Juzay in his Tafsir ibn al-Juzay, Abu Hayyan in his Tafsir Bahl al-Muhid, Imam ibn al-Kathir in his Tafsir ibn al-Kathir, Imam al-Bidawi in his Tafsir Anwar al-Tanzil, Imam al-Suyuti, Jalalain al-Suyuti in his Tafsir Jalalain. Is that enough? <laughs> right? That went from every century one by one. So you're talking about centuries of scholarship, right? Also coming to that view. So its point was, I was giving emphasis to show you that this position is not without weight. This is what I'm trying to counter, this myth that is circulated. That No, not like that. This is a scholarly position which has the weight of Qur'an, has the weight of Sunnah, has the weight of Hadith, has the weight of Ummahat al-Mu'mineen, has the weight of Sahabiyat, has the weight of Islamic history, has the weight of the scholars of Tafsir behind it. It is not just something that has been cooked up by people. Alright? Okay. So, this was intense part. Now we can move on uh, from this. So this was the issue of 
gender issues and purifying uh, ourselves for the and all of this is done for our own benefit our own benefit right Yeah, I have to discuss one more thing, I remember. Ihram. This is nothing that people have used, right? That in Hajj, now listen to this carefully. In Hajj, when you enter Halat Ihram, you are asked by Allah, you are commanded by Allah Subhanahu to do certain things that are khilaf adha, that are against the norm. For example, the mat, you are told you cannot use soap, you cannot wash, you cannot apply perfume. You cannot wear unstitched clothing. And those commandments are against the norm. So if you want to know what the norm is, the norm is going to be the opposite of what we're being told to do in Halat Ihram. So even if, like, if a man wants to know what can I do, he can look at the conditions of Ihram. The opposite of that is what he can do normally in life. I can wear stitched clothes. I can use soap. I can use perfume. Right? I can cover my head. Right? So just like that, it's amazing. It also amazes me the fraud that is done. That people say that don't you see in Hajj, in Ihram, Allah Ta'ala's command that a woman cannot let cloth touch her face. This is a proof that there's no such thing as niqab. This is actually one of the proofs that there's niqab. Why did Allah Ta'ala, if there was no niqab, no woman would ever have had a cloth touching her face, why would Allah Ta'ala have to say such a thing? Why would Allah Ta'ala have to say this specifically when you go on Hajj? Be sure that no cloth touches your face. If no women, if as some speakers try to pretend there's no concept of niqab in Islam, if there was no concept of niqab in Islam, why does Allah Ta'ala have to issue this ruling? This is not a proof against niqab, this is a proof for niqab. Right? Should make, should, it's common sense. That's why I'm amazed that you, not you people here, but certain people, some of you might be here, how you accept the things that people tell you on TV, even though against, it goes against common sense. And then somebody tells you something that goes against explicit Quran, and it goes against common sense, and it goes against history, and it goes against scholarship, and you accept it and you quote it to others. And some of you are so confident about it, you even come and try to debate me about it. So confident. But that's bimbunyad baat. Aap ek bimbunyad baat lekar aise pirte hain ki wo koi thos cheez hai. You have to be humble in your deen. Deen is what Allah Ta'ala tells us. Deen is Quran al Kareem, Nabi al Kareem sallallahu Sahaba, Sahabiyat. That's her deen. Nobody, no 21st century scholar can change that. Why would you want them to change that? Is there some flaw in Quran that we need somebody to reinterpret it? Is there some flaw in the Prophet that we need somebody to reinterpret him? Is there some flaw in Sahaba that we need somebody to present a new model to us? Is there some flaw, na'udhu billah, in Umahatu Mu'maneen and those noble Sahabiyat, those purest of women, not just the Umahatu Mu'maneen, all the Sahabiyat? Is there some flaw in that model that you need somebody to give the Muslim world of today a different role model? What are you doing? If you can't practice, that's a different thing. If you're not strong enough to do that, that's a different thing. If it's you're, you're, not, you're too lazy, you're not strong, you're not able, you're not ready. But why do you lose your humility? Why do you get the arrogance to say, no, no, that's Islam and this is all 
just nonsense what movies have come up with. So it's the arrogance only that I'm trying to erase today. As far as your amal, that's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My job is to put the Quran and the Hadith and the Mufassirun in front of you. The rest is between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But at least erase the arrogance. Be humble when it comes to deen. Be open-minded. Yes, I can use their words where they really should be applied. Be open-minded and tolerant. Be tolerant when it comes to niqab. Be open-minded when it comes to niqab. Be tolerant to the niqabi woman. Be kind to the niqabi woman. Be just to the niqabi woman. Right? And then make your own decision based on your own heart, your own iman, your own taqwa. Right? Okay. So that was one last point on that. Alright, verse number 32. Now we're going to pick up some speed. Well, no, we can't pick up much speed because verse 35 is Ayatul Nur, which is the real reason why you should want to enjoy Surah Nur. Piraqku. Zada Mazayma. Inshallah. Right? Okay. So in ayat number 32, what is Allah saying? Oh yes, I said after, there's going to be another big thing I have to stop and do over here. Yeah. What can you do? Right? You better make it hot if you Quran Allah says in Quran that marry those from you who are unmarried. Okay, that makes sense, right? Uh, and those slave men and women who are righteous. If they are poor, then Allah Ta'ala will make each of them wealthy by His grace. Allah Ta'ala has min fadlihi wallahu wasiyun. Allah Ta'ala's wasiyun, that means He's wide, means He's wide of resources. He has unlimited resources and He is alim, He is all knowing. Those who are unable to marry, they should guard their chastity until Allah Ta'ala grants them both independence through His grace. And what I was saying that we walked into here was this issue of slavery in Islam. Another big one, right? Alright. So, and although that's not here, and I think I did this actually for you last year, Ma Malakat Aymanahum, but I'll just do it again because there are some people who are new this time around. Slavery. Now, now, if you want to talk about something that predates Islam, this is where you bring in the history, the anthropology, what was pre-Islamic. This is the place for that. So before Islam, there was slavery in the Arabian world. When the end of Islam came, Nabiya Karim Sallallahu was revealed, Allah Ta'ala revealed to the Prophet a process by which slavery would be eliminated. And history testifies to the fact that the Islamic civilization went through that process and then eliminated slavery. And in fact, slavery continued in the West, in colonialism, and after colonialism, then they also stopped slavery. Critics, even in the West, will say that they had a new type of slavery, which was known as segregation and racism and prejudice. And then the civil rights, I'm speaking from a very American perspective now, and the civil rights movement in the 1960s, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and others, were able to at least abolish the laws of discrimination. And whether discrimination and prejudice still exist in the hearts of people, that is something that is up to debate and discovery. Okay? Alright. Here specifically I want to talk about the issue of marriage and or marital relations with slaves. So first thing here, actually this is a very noble command, that okay, you could even marry a slave as long as the slave is righteous. So the lesson from this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying that, uh, you know, Social status isn't so important. It's taqwa that's important. When Allah Ta'ala says that you can marry even a slave, even if they're righteous, 
One lesson, which is the lesson being given in this ayah, before I talk about slavery, is that the real thing to look at when who you want to marry is taqwa. Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned this, that marriage is normally done for due to beauty, lineage, means family, wealth, or piety, taqwa. And then he said that you, O mu'mineen, should marry for the basis of taqwa. That's why you should marry. You should select your spouse on the basis of taqwa. Means taqwa first and foremost. And once taqwa is assured, then yes, you may look at those other factors as well. Right? And here Allah Ta'ala is showing it so much that even you could, which normally people don't like to do, marry in a social class lower to them. So obviously a slave is a lower social class than a free person. Allah Subhanahu says you can marry as long as if they have taqwa. If that's the reason you're doing it, then you can do that, right? If they have, if they are pious, all right? Okay. The word here is salihin, but I'm saying taqwa means if they're from the salihin, salihin are the people who have taqwa, they're the righteous people, all right? You know what I said? I won't get myself into that because you can just listen to it. Uh, maybe one of the people who were here last year can remind us. When I commented on that, okay? Because that's actually what I was going to do right now is not actually here. So let me stick to the tafsir of the ayat that are in front of us. So that's what this part means. If they're poor, what Allah subhanahu wa is saying is that nikah, the second thing Allah is saying is that Allah puts barakah in nikah. That if they're poor, then Allah ta'ala will, from his fuzzle and karam and from his unlimited recourse and resources, he will put, increase them in their financial wealth. Uh, and this is a very important thing this is our belief in our deen that when a person either gets married or has children Allah Ta'ala puts barakah and kasrat in that person's risk right? another hadith Nabi Karim Sallallahu said in Sunnah of Tirmidhi that when you receive a proposal from a person who has taqwa and is salih then you should accept that proposal right? so that is another hadith that is important on this issue Another hadith that is relevant for present company is that Umm Umin Ashur and Sayyidina said that the most blessed marriage is the one with the least expenses. Yes, that's simple. And it's unfortunate that you needed your government to legislate that to you. You should have realized that yourself out of your own compassion for the poor in this country. Now, there's a reasonable level in which you can celebrate, right? I'm not saying invite people have a reasonable amount of food for them, but extravagance and show, such as literally, right, bringing food from Karachi to Lahore, having fish brought in from Dubai to Lahore, people do these type of things, right? And that's just showmanship, and then one-upmanship, so that's not appropriate, right? That's not appropriate, and this, Nabi is teaching us that we will lose the barakah, the marriage will lose the barakah if it was conducted, the wedding ceremony was conducted in such a way. Okay, verse 33. You should enter... I'm just sorry. Yeah, yeah uh, those who are unable to marry, okay. Should guard their chastity. Now, this is one of the most difficult tasks for the youth. This also I've spoken about at length elsewhere. One of the things the Prophet ﷺ had said in the Hadith in Bukhari, that those who cannot marry should fast, because fast suppresses the passions. One comment I want to make here. That fasting is going to be a cure for this if you are already following Iman. For example, if a doctor gives you medicine, the medicine, let's say you're suffering from weakness, and the doctor gives you medicine so your strength will be restored. 
but it's understood that your strength will be restored as long as you're also eating three balanced meals a day. Unless if you take the medicine but you don't eat food, your strength won't be restored. So fasting is a cure for this problem of lust if a person is following the other injunctions of deen, first and foremost you're lowering the gaze. And if you fast but don't lower the gaze, then yes, when you raise the gaze and look at those things, it will nullify the beneficial effect the fast had on you. So don't be perplexed at why I fasted Nabi Yukarim, so some said that fasting would help and it's not helping me, because you were supposed to fast while doing the other things you were supposed to be doing, and you didn't do that. So yes, if you fast and then at night don't look at something on the screen that you weren't supposed to look at, the fast is not going to benefit you there. Fast is no claim, there's no claim on the part of the Prophet that the fasting will save you in that situation. But if you are lowering your gaze, and while lowering your gaze you still feel an uncontrollable desire, then if you fast, the barakah of that extra nafil fasting, and depending on how uncontrollable that desire is, it may be one fast, maybe three fast, maybe seven fast, maybe ten fast, but the process of fasting will erase that unlawful desire as long as you keep your gaze lowered. That's what Nabiya Karim is teaching us in the Sunnah. Right? Okay, the next verse, uh, the rest of the verse 33 is talking about something called Kitabah. I will just mention to you, this to you very quickly because this is a rule that no longer applies. When there was slavery, this is one of the ways Islam made to abolish slavery, was that the slave could set a price by which to buy their freedom and then they would be allowed to work by their master and the wages they would earn would, use to, would be to pay off this up the kitabah and then they would become free when they paid it off. So this is just the verse that Allah SWT is mentioning about that. Uh, and if any of your slaves should seek to enter into a contract of kitabah, which is you can call it like a bond with you, then have such a contract drawn up for them. Give them from Allah Taala's wealth that Allah SWT, give them from Allah Taala's wealth that He has given you and will set them off on that work. Maybe even give them something to start their business so that they can earn and then buy their freedom. The buying of the freedom was viewed as a compensation for the purchase price you may have paid for the slave, right? And elsewhere we will see in Quran there are many reasons why a person should free a slave as a kafara. And then Nabi Yuqarim mentioned the incredible rewards for freeing a slave. So basically Islam incentivized the abolishment of slavery. And because the early mu'mineen wanted all of those incentives and rewards, so they started freeing slaves. Okay? And here do not force... Uh, do not force the, the uh, do not force the female slaves into prostitution in your quest for worldly goods. That's not something the Muslimin were doing. The Mushrikeen of Makkah Mukarrama they also right this is a pre-Islamic practice. But what the Mushrikeen of Makkah Mukarrama would do with their female slaves, they would actually force them into prostitution and charge money for that. They used their slaves as a money-making machine. So Allah Subhanahu is legislating against that and saying the believers that you shouldn't do what the non-believers did, or what perhaps some of you may have done before you accepted Islam, right? This is the pre-Islamic practice that has, is being abolished in Qur'an, right? When they want to be chased. If anyone does coerce them, then Allah Ta'ala is most forgiving after this coercion, most merciful. Doesn't mean Allah Ta'ala is forgiving the one who's forcing them. What Allah Ta'ala is saying is that if, because you all said a phenomenon that slaves also were accepting Islam, so if there is a woman who was a slave to a non-Muslim, right? And then she accepts Islam. And then this verse is revealed, right? 
but that non-Muslim is her master and he violently forces her to do these depraved things. So this verse was for her that Allah Ta'ala is saying, look, if anybody forces the woman, Allah Ta'ala is most forgiving on that woman after her being forced to do so and he is most merciful. So she will not be to blame if she has been forced in anything in any way. This ayah is very important for people who are in Islamic counseling to counsel a Muslim woman who is a victim of rape or victim of abuse or victim of harassment or a victim of any type of coercion whatsoever that Allah Subhanahu understands that Allah Subhanahu will not hold you liable in any way you should not feel any guilt in any way you should not feel any shame in any way and you should know that Allah Subhanahu is Ghafoor and Rahim that Allah is all forgiving and all merciful alright so that's the importance of this verse. Verse number 34. Then Allah Ta'ala, after mentioning all of these things, said, وَلَكَدْ أَنزَلْنَا عَلَيْكُمْ آيَةٍ مُبَيِّنَاتٍ And indeed we have revealed and sent down upon you clear ayat. Right? So clear verses in which uh, clear verses and وَمَثَلًا مَثَلًا and means some narratives, some stories, some similarities, some examples. From those who passed before you. And all of this is an advice and counsel for the muttaqin. So all of the commands in Surah Nur from verse 1 to 4, Allah Ta'ala Himself is saying that they're ayatim mubayyinat. Therefore for anybody to say, oh no, the Quran isn't clear in these passages, or this, you know, we really don't know what's being said here. Allah Ta'ala Himself is saying, no. These, what has been revealed here is clear. Alright? And it is a mo'idah, it is something that who will heed and who will get advice from? The muttaqeen, the people of taqwa. So now we come to ayat nur which is now going to, now Allah Ta'ala is done with ahkam and now Allah Ta'ala is going to say what historically and even now should be understood to be one of the most amazing ayat of Qur'an al-Kareem. أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ اللَّهُ نُورُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ مَثَلُ نُورِهِ كَمِشْكَاتٍ فِيهِ مِسْبَاحٌ الْمِسْبَاحُ فِي الزُّجَاجَةِ الزُّجَاجَةُ كَأَنَّهَا كَوْكَبٌ دُرِيٌّ يُؤْكَدُ مِنْ شَجَرَةٍ مُبَارَكَةٍ زَيْتُونَةٍ لَا يَقَادُ زَيْتُهَا يُذِيءُ وَلَوْ لَمْ تَمْسَسْهُ نَارٌ نُورٌ عَلَى نُورٌ يَهْدِ اللَّهُ لِنُورِهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَيَذْرِبُ اللَّهُ الْأَمْثَالَ لِلنَّاسِ وَاللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٌ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ الْعَظِيمُ This is an ayah in Qur'an al-Kareem after which the surah is named Surah al-Nur Some people call this ayah Ayat al-Nur because of the many different things in this ayah, I'm going to explain this ayah three times so that we can gradually progress into three levels of understanding. First, let me read the translation to the ayah. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the nur, means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the light of the samawat, the heavens or celestial realms, and ard and the earth. The likeness of his light, Mathalanurihi, the likeness of his divine light is as follows Kamishkatin fiha misbah, like there is a niche and it in and in it a lamp, al Misbahu fi and the lamp is inside a glass, 
azjadatu and that glass ka'annaha kokabun durriyun is as if it were a shining or glittering or blazing star yukadu min shajratin and it yukadu min that has been lit min shajratin mubarakatin from a blessed tree of olive blessed olive tree zaytuna la shakiyatin mulaqabiya Literally, it means that neither from where the sun rises that about the tree, this is being mentioned about the tree, it is a tree that is neither from where the sun rises, yani neither from the east, nor from where the sun sets, yani neither from the west. Yakadu zaytuha, that its oil is such that it almost, it is near to be luminous and to give light even before any fire touches it, even before it is ignited, even before it is lit means the oil is so pure that the oil itself is almost as if it is shining and ablaze even before it is lit or it is set on fire or it is ignited. This is the example, the Anur al-Nur. So this is a light upon light. Yahdillahu li-Nurihi and Allah subhanahu wa guides to His Nur man yasha whomsoever He wills. And Allah Subhanahu draws comparisons, coins, similitudes, and examples linas for people. And Allah Alim and Allah has knowledge, all knowledge over every single thing. So first of all, there are many different ways the Mufassirun have commented on this verse. And this is yet again an example, like we've told you, where there will be multiple meanings can be held to be true simultaneously. So when I'm going to mention multiple, multiple meanings, you're not supposed to pick one. All of them are actually meanings of this ayah of Qur'an al-Karim. Number one, Allahu Nur. So what does it mean for Allah Subhanahu to be Nur? Allah Ta'ala being Nur means that Allah Ta'ala is that being whose Nur illuminates. He is Nur himself. In Al-Baqin he is Nur. And Al-Zahir is Nur, and he is also the manif- one who manifests Nur in the Samawat and the earth. He is the creator of all Nur in the heavens and the earth. He illuminates through his Nur all of the heavens and the earth. He illuminates the Zahir of the heavens and the earth with his Nur. He illuminates the Batin of the heavens and the earth with his Nur. Adding to his Nur, there's other Nur also in Samawat that comes from the Nisbat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the nur of the angels. The angels are beings made of nur. That Allah ta'ala created them out of nur. And then their nur being part of his created nur also illuminates the heavens. Then the tasbih and the zikr that the angels do also is a nur. And that is also something that Allah ta'ala enabled and endowed them to do. So that is also one of the ways. So we're talking about the samawat aspect now. The way Allah Subhanahu illuminates the Samawat is through the creation of the angels and the zikr and the tasbih of the angels. How did Allah Ta'ala set nur on ard? Allah Ta'ala set nur on this earth by sending anbiya and mursaleen. So the prophets are nur. Their coming to earth is the way Allah Ta'ala set nur on earth. Their teachings, their lives, hayati tayyibah, siratul mubarakah, their sunnah, their adat, their sayings, their hadith, all of that is nur. And the propagation of their sayings and their teachings, that is nur. Those people who inculcate and instill and live according to those teachings, the siddiqeen, they are also a nur on earth. 
So this is how Allah Ta'ala put his nur onto earth so the Anbiya, Mursaleen and the Siddiqeen. Then from all of creation Allah Ta'ala sends his nur of hidayah which is that he guides creation as to what it is to do. This I explained to you once before. So the baby dolphin is guided to the nur of Allah Ta'ala's hidayah when it comes out of the belly of the mother dolphin it already knows how to swim. That was the nur of Allah Ta'ala's hidayah. Alright. So this is the first step on Nur Samawatu Ard. Then Allah Ta'ala coins an example, draws a comparison between his nur and another nur, or rather between the nur that Allah Ta'ala is sending onto the Samawat and Ard. That illumination that emanates from Allah Ta'ala and it descends to this world. And that was this example of number one, the likeness of his divine light is number one, there's a niche. And in it there is a lamp. So the lamp is in itself illuminating. But its illumination is going to be augmented by what? The lamp is inside a glass. And the notion is that the glass is crystal clear, clean, sparkling clear glass. And the clarity of the glass gives further light or further illumination to that light that Allah subhanahu is sending. Alright. Then this light that's coming from the oil from that blessed olive tree. So what does it mean neither east or west? It means that this tree is situated in a place where there is no horizon. There is no setting of the sun, no rising of the sun. There is no waning and waxing of the sun, no fading or disappearing of the sun. What does it mean that this tree, olive tree, from which the oil will come... This tree is perpetually receiving the nur of the sun all the time because it's neither east or west. The sun never fades in shade. This tree is never in nighttime. So it's coining an example that the most purely distilled olive oil would come from that olive which is on that tree that receives continual endless sunlight. That's what this example is. Alright? And the result of that is then that oil that olive oil from such a tree of olives is so pure and distilled that even before any fire touches it, even before it's lit, it's as if it's already sparkling and illuminating. Even it's giving off light. The oil itself is so pure that it itself is giving off light even prior to it being ignited. Alright? Okay. Then Allah Ta'ala then called us, so that's Nur Al-Nur. One is the light, the Nur that is in that pure olive oil itself, that is already luminous even before being lit. And then after it is lit, then it gives off that brilliance. That is the Nur Al-Nur. The flame that emanates from that olive oil is the second Nur on the Nur of the olive oil itself. Alright, now Sayyidina Hassan and Sayyidina Zayd radiallahu say that Nur al-Alam, this Nur refers to Qur'an al-Karim. Sayyidina Sayyid ibn Jabir is of the opinion that this Nur refers to Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas and Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Masood radiallahu anhu say that Nur refers to the Nur of Hidayah that Allah Ta'ala puts into the qulub of the Mu'mineen and the hearts of all of the Mu'mineen, right? And this is what we have explained before once we did a whole talk for you on this topic. Afaman sharaha Allahu sadruhu. 
that indeed that person whom Allah Ta'ala has expanded his breath to Islam for the deen of Islam فَهُوَ عَلَى نُورٍ مِّن رَبِّهِ that indeed such a person is on a nur from their Rabb so when Allah Ta'ala sends his nur into their kalb and their breast gets expanded for the deen of Islam that nur of hidayah that is what is being referred to here according to Sayyidina Ibn Abbas and Sayyidina Abdullah bin Masood radiallahu ta'ala anhumah Right. You also need to see this. This is another side of Islam we haven't seen, right? And that's another other type of propaganda out there. That this stuff is just all Sufi propaganda. It's just Sufi stuff. It's Quran. It's saying of Sahaba Ikram, right? That Allah Taala puts a nur into the hearts of people. That's in Quran, in Quran, and how to get that nur, Quran, and that you should want that nur, right? Okay. Some uh, say that the first nur is the nur of hidayah and the second nur that comes on top of that is the nur of ita'ah and as the nur of obedience to that guidance. So when you receive the guidance, the guidance itself is a nur and then when you follow and obey that guidance, that act of submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and following the guidance He reveals that produces a second nur. So nur and other nur. And then, in that sense, the way, and this is Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanwadi's commentary, this is his own unique commentary on this, that he says the first nur is the hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the second nur is the ita'ah. And this is what he says is that the olive oil, which was so pure that it's almost luminous in itself, it just needs a spark to go, so that's the purity of the hidayah Allah ta'ala gave. And when the mu'min then makes niyyah and amal on that hidayah, that is the spark and that ignites that oil and that creates the real nur. So the real nur isn't the hidayah itself, the real nur is doing amal on that hidayah. It's when you do amal on the hidayah that its real nur is manifested and revealed. Allah Akbar. Nurun. Allah. Nur. Alright. Then he took it further that then in that case, uh, once they do amal, then the glass, uh, the glass makes the nur of that person's amal spread, and then that own person's following of hidayah becomes a means of further illumination through the glass, that it becomes a source of hidayah for other people. All right. And again, this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran, linking this nur to hidayah. This Surah Anam, uh, verse 125, that whomsoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intends that He wants to guide them, yashrah sadrahu al-Islam, Allah ta'ala expands His sadr for Islam. And in the early ayah Surah Zumar that we did, that is done by sending nur. So this is the rip rupt between nur, hidayah, and shara, and a person's breast. Then, this we explained to you that night in that talk as well, that Sayyidina Masood in the report said Sayyidina was asked by the Sahaba that is there some sign by which we can recognize that the nur has come into the breast of a person? And the Prophet said, yes, there are signs. And the first sign is that, this is in Tirmidhi, the first sign is that a person distances himself from the abode of deception in this worldly life, and he, instead he or she, she turns her attention towards the Akhirah. 
and that she prepares for death beforehand, this is the sign that that nur has entered that person's breast. So when do we know that the nur is coming to us, that we're less interested in the dunya, we're more interested in akhirah, and we start preparing for our death, and we prepare for our journey for that akhirah. Alright, that was the first take. Second take, Imam al has mentioned that nur is two things in this context. Allah Ta'ala's nur, nur is That nur is al-zahir and al-mudhir. Al-zahir means Allah Ta'ala's own nur, his own nur. And mudhir is him using that nur to illuminate the samawat and ard. So one is to have light and one is to illuminate, one is to be a being of light. And the second is to lose that light to illuminate the physical creation. So this is the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using this here. That he is nur, but his nur is samawat wal ard. When Allah ta'ala linked it to that, Allah ta'ala is saying that he is nur and there's one aspect of that nur, not his entire nur. If his entire nur was manifested here, we would be blind. <laughs> right? One infinitesimal drop, subatomic particle, quark, subquark, subfoton level amount of nur of his is what has been sent to illuminate the samawat and the earth. Right. So this is why another name for Allah Spanta is he is Al Munawir, Tanwir. Al Munawir means the one who illuminates. Tanwir is the act of illuminating. The act of uh, sending or emitting or emanating or transmitting or sharing or casting down that nur. As far as this, uh, the verse goes in Arabic. Okay, Mathalu Nurihi. So there are two views on this pronoun. First view is Mathala means in the likeness, Nur of the light, He of Allah Spantals. So first uh, possibility is that the pronoun refers to Allah Spantala. So that would mean that the Nur of Allah Ta'ala is placed into the hearts of the believers. And the heart of the believer is like the Mishkat, is like that niche, right? that has a lamp in it. The heart of the believer is that niche that has the lamp in it. The other explanation is that the pronoun here actually refers to the believers. So, Mathal Nuri, he would mean and the likeness of the Nur of the believers, right, is that the chest of the believer is like a niche. Well, the, the Sadr, Sadr, the Sadr is the Mishkal, the breast of the believer is like the niche. The qalb is the misbah, the qalb, the heart is like the um, lantern or the lamp that is placed inside that niche. The olive oil that is inside that, that is the nur of hidayah that Allah Ta'ala puts in the heart of the believer. And also the fitr, the insani, that Allah Ta'ala, the inherent intrinsic human nature that Allah Ta'ala puts to be, enable us to recognize truth. فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا Allah Ta'ala says He inspires human beings to know what is wrong and to know what is right. Alright. And this would mean that every human being then has this nur 
and only if they persist consistently on atheism or kufr or shirk then they start losing what? that olive oil you can imagine it starts evaporating because it's unused because they fail to light the spark so then as long as they keep failing to light the spark they keep losing the oil and one day what happens was because of their own failure to light the spark then the oil becomes zero when the oil becomes zero that's when Allah Ta'ala says Khatam Allahu Alakulubihim that now a seal has been set by Allah Ta'ala on their heart He didn't set the seal they did it by not lighting the spark but now the oil has finished now there is nothing that can spark them that's what Allah Ta'ala says many times about the Quran that it's irrelevant we did this last year in the beginning of Quran it's irrelevant when you warn them or you don't warn them they're not going to accept Iman there's no now mat that can work on them because their oil is finished. This is another way. This has been understood. Alright? Okay. Then we, Sayyidina Qab al-Ahbar said that the nur here is meant for the kalb of Sayyidina Rasulullah So what does it mean? The mishkat is the sadr of the Prophet The zujaja, he said, the glass is his kalb. And the misbah, the lamp inside the glass is the nur of Nabuwa. So the nur of Nabuwa is inside his kalb. His kalb is inside his sadr. So actually this is referring to the light of the Prophet And the nur of his Nabuwa was the illumination for insan. And in fact the nur of his Nabuwa was the illumination for everything in the samawat and the earth. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created... The first thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created, this is another thing that comes in hadith. Some hadith say the nur of the Prophet some hadith say the qalam, some hadith say the lawh upon which the qalam will write. And what they say have commented on the salat, you could take all of this simultaneously even, that all three were created. But as far as any concept of insani, because qalam and lawh are not insan, right? So the very beginning of insaniyyah, before Sayyidina Adam a.s. body was created, before Allah Ta'ala put his ruin to him, before the angels did sajda to him, way before that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had created the nur of the nabuwat of Sayyidina Rasulullah And because he is Nabi of all of the Anbiya, and Nabi of all of Insan, and Rahmatullah Alameen, it's actually the mechanism through which Allah Ta'ala illuminated this whole universe, Samawat and Ard, is through the nur of the Nabuat of Sayyidina Rasulullah So that's another meaning of this verse, right? And Shaykh Jalandi Nasiyutirim Allah Ta'ala's Khasayas Kubra, and also by Abu Naim and Dalal Nabuwa have mentioned a lot of details about this. And this is why you see in Nabi Akram before his prophethood was manifested at age 40 there are miraculous things that happen when he is a baby and an infant and a child that was the nur of his nabuwa that was causing those animals to be attracted to him and causing the camel on which he rode to go fast and so many things. Right? That's another understanding. Alright. Third way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the nur of the samawat and ard. So Allah subhanahu wa is nur, nur-e-haq, nur-e-mutlaq. Absolute unqualified nur. So first let's talk about, because that's the name of Allah subhanahu wa an-nur. In the sense that Allah subhanahu wa is an-nur, that is what we call in Arabic theology, bila kayf. 
Why am I mentioning this? Because I am actually doing this to do run of a particular concept which is Bahdatul Wujud. Allah Ta'ala's Noor is not composed of particles such that He has scattered His Noor into the universe and everything has a piece of Allah in them. That is incorrect. So that is called in, you know, sometimes it's called monism, sometimes it's called uh, pantheism. I've been forgetting now what the English word is for this. But this notion that every single thing that is created has a piece of the nur of Allah Ta'ala inside of it, no. As far as Allah Ta'ala's own nur is concerned, mutlaq means that it is indivisible. It does not accept the jazzi. You cannot split up anything of Allah Ta'ala's attributes or features into parts. Allah Ta'ala's own nur is haq and mutlaq. And when you take this ayah to mean Allah Ta'ala's nur, that's why he's coining this example. You see that when you have the light inside the lantern, it's the light of that flame that goes out. It's not any particle of that flame that goes anywhere. The flame is not being split up into particles and scattering out. The flame remains inside the glass. Inside. The flame is, in the, is the lamp inside the glass, inside the niche. The flame doesn't go anywhere. No piece of the flame goes anywhere. But the light that emanates from the flame, that goes everywhere. So, so we don't all have a piece of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inside of us. No, that's incorrect. Right? But Allah ta'ala from His nur, from His nur mutlaq, from His nur haq, He has transmitted, emanated the luminescence of His nur onto the samawat and earth. We have that inside of us. So that was Allah ta'ala in Quran. Wa huwa ala nurin min rabbihi. Not the not ala that they are on their Rabb's nur. No, they are on a nur min, which means from min rabbihi. They are on a nur that emanates from their Rabb. So the nur of the Rabb, Allah Ta'ala Himself, is one thing. The nur that emanates from Him, nur, is a second thing. Hence, nur al nur. So what we receive, we don't have Allah Ta'ala's own nur inside of us. We have that nur that emanates from Allah Ta'ala's own nur. That's what, that second nur is what we have inside of us. And that second nur is the nur of Iman, the nur of Hidayah, the nur of Taqwa, the nur of Yaqeen, the nur of Haya, all of that. And that being who had the most of that nur, the highest grade of that nur is nur in Abuwa. And the highest Nabi is Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. So actually first emanation of Allah Ta'ala's nur is the nur of Nabuwa. And then through that nur in Nabuwa is the prism, the glass, the zujaja, through which all of the nur, of, all the other emanated nur reaches the samawat and earth. But even the glass is not the flame. The glass is the prism through which the flame goes out. So Nabi is ghair and Allah Ta'ala is ghair. Even Nabi Kareem Sassam does not have a piece of Allah Ta'ala's nur in him. The glass doesn't have a piece of the flame in it. But it is the prism through which everything else gets illuminated by the light of the flame. I see why I did in three stages. Hmm? I hope you're understanding the third stage. So... This is Matanu Nurihi. Alright. I said this niche, this niche part, right? 
Okay. The Mishka, the niche, the purpose of the niche is to spread the light even further. The glass is the prism. The niche creates the reflective, refractive effect of light. So that maybe is the best term, English term I could use to make you understand that. So the purpose of the niche, the Mishkat, is to reflect and refract that emanated nur, which is from the emanating from the nur of Allah Spantal. It is clear the nur that is emanating is different and distinct, not a piece of, is something different and distinct from the nur itself. Alright? And that's why Allah uses the example of fire. You have that word here, nar. You see, there's the fire and the light given off by the fire. The light given off by the fire is not pieces of fire. Okay? Alright. Okay, so the olive oil, that blessed, so what we had mentioned about all of that, that it's such a pure oil. So this purity, this inherent purity, that is the nur of fitrat that Allah subhanahu wa created. And when the second nur comes upon it, when it is ignited into fire, that is the nur of wahi, the nur of revelation. So when Allah Ta'ala sent revelation through prophets to humanity, when the teachings of wahi merge with the teachings of fitrah, then you have absolute pure creation. This is the most pure, Allah Ta'ala is the purest being. After that is creation. The purest type of creation is that one who has the pure fitrah and purely follows the pure teaching of wahi. If there's anything wrong in us or anything wrong in our following, then the nur that we have and the nur that we emanate will become successively less and less and less. And this is also something Allah Ta'ala said elsewhere in the Quran, Fitratullahi lati fataran nasa alayhi Fitratullahi lati fataran nasa alayhi that this is the fitrat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he has put humanity and people on that fitrat. So that ayah in Quran is mentioning this notion of the purity of the fitrat. Some commentators have also taken that this tree is referring to the tree. The tree is symbolically referring to everything that is on top of the arsh. There's where this where does this like you extract oil from an olive which is hanging on a tree. So this fitra, nur of fitra that Allah Ta'ala put in insan, that's not from this world. This has come from the presence of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. This has come from that realm in which He exists, which is beyond the kursi and arsh. This comes from, if you want to call it, the divine presence. And that's what this tree represents, right? And that divine presence, divine presence, is always getting the tajalliyat and the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore anything that is made in the Divine Presence, such as Sayyidina Adam salam, was made in the Divine Presence, and like I told you, the nur of the nabuat of the Prophet was made in the, was not made on planet Earth, this is something Allah ta'ala made in His Divine Presence. Alright? And so something that is made in that Divine Presence has such a absolute purity to it, that it just needs a spark to set it off. That spark occurs in this world. So wahi and anbiya, all of those things are things that are 
taking place on earth or on this world. Right? And so I'll tell you one more thing but then I will stop. Because Jitna Bhazam Karsakta Right? Is that if a person has that true fitrat and what does that mean? That it's close to lighting, it's close to igniting even before the flame touches it, that is what it means to be Hanif. So Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, he could come to he realized Allah Ta'ala existed without receiving that wahi because of that pure fitra. Or Sayyidina Umar Ibn Khattab, Sayyidina Farooq what we did for you last year, the Muafiqati Umar, that Sayyidina Umar would have a view, the Prophet would ask him his opinion, he would give a view, and then Allah Ta'ala would reveal a verse according to the view of Sayyidina Umar, that was his pure fitrat. So this is that if some enter, that's a ghair nabi. So I give you one example from a nabi, and one example from a ghair nabi, so it's even possible for a ghair nabi to have such a pure core that they can perceive a haqiqah or a haq. Now by that haqiqah and haq, I'm not saying that they can see behind the wall or they can see what's going on in Tokyo. No, haqiqah in deen means some ma'arif of deen. The haqiqah of salah, the haqiqah of Kaaba, the haqiqah of Quran. As opposed to we may just see a stone structure when we go there. They may actually see the reality that this place is the markaz of the tajaliyat of Allah SWT. So, then Allah Ta'ala, so we stop on that. And this is a special puzzle of Allah SWT. This is a special gift of Allah SWT. يَهْدِ اللَّهُ لِنُورِهِ مَنْ Allah Ta'ala guides to this nur that He sends down, this nur that He emanates. مَنْ whom He wants. This is his special fuzzle and karam and gift that he bestows on people. Right? And then, and Allah Ta'ala said, he has simply coined and drawn a comparison for you so that you can understand, O people. Wallahu bikulli shayin alim. But it's Allah Subhanahu who has all knowledge over every single thing. Alright. Now we can move with some speed. So we can finish you up today, inshallah. Verses 36 onwards. Continuing on with Surah Nur. Verses number 36 onwards. On the middle of the Shaitan Rajim, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Fee biyutin adhin allahu antulfa'ab wa yudhkara fee hasmuhu yusambihu lahu fiha bil ghudubi wal asal. And so these are homes, built literally means house or home. This is referring to masajid. This is an ayah talking about the homes of Allah SWT. And Allah Ta'ala has allowed, literally allowed or enjoined that what that Allah that anturfa that people should raise with reverence and awe, but they should raise the name of Allah's raise and remember, sorry, in those houses that Allah Ta'ala has allowed to be turfa to be raised, to be constructed then the name of Allah Subhanahu should be mentioned in those houses. And then also Yusabbihu lahu and Allah Ta'ala should be glorified in those houses in the mornings and the evenings. The Ghuduwi and Asal are both plural. So mornings and evenings has been used here by some commentators to suggest again the different, the five prayers uh, of 
the Muslims, all right? And uh, Rabt here, Rabt, said before Allah Ta'ala talked about his nur, now comes in the next three ayahs the mention of how to get that nur. How is the person going to get this nur on this earth? How are they going to get the nur from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So Allah ta'ala has allowed houses to be built and erected in which the name of Allah ta'ala will be mentioned. So the masajid on earth are the sabab by which Allah ta'ala emanates and manifests his nur on earth. If you want to know where is that place where I can go to get more nur in my kalb, more nur in my sadr, and what will I do in that place to get more nur in my kalb? Yudhkara. I will make zikr of the name of Allah SWT. Yes? If you make zikr of Allah Ta'ala's name, you will get more of the nur of Allah Ta'ala in your qalb and in your sadr. The Zubar Mashaik teaches us the practice of taking the mentioning Allah Ta'ala's name in our heart. And I had mentioned to you earlier that this has three meanings. means zikr of Allah's name. Allah Allah means praying salah and means recitation of Qur'an. These are the three things that are meant by this. And second, yusabbihulahu and to generally do the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa Alright. So this is the way a person is going to get the nur. Then what will happen? Is the nur only going to exist in while and they're in the masjid? No. رِجَالٌ لَا تُلْهِيهِمْ تِجَارَةٌ وَلَا بَيْءٌ عَنْ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ No, no. They have so much nur that yes, the markaz and center of the nur is the masjid, but now there will be such people who are so munawwar, who are so endowed with that nur, that they've become some people, they've become such that neither tijara nor bea, neither commerce nor, neither trade or sale, nor commerce or sale can distract them on zikrillah. From remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now they've got a nur that is unfading. They will still, they won't live in the masjid. There's no monasticism. They will work in the world, engage in the world. They will be in the university. They will be in the office. They will be in the shop. They will be in the factory. They will be on the street. They will be everywhere. But nothing, once they get this nur in their qalb, that nur that was from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that was like the niche in which a lamp was set and had a glass over it, that nur, once they get that nur, then nothing can distract them from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nor can anything distract them from iqba'ikam is salah. Nothing can distract them from establishing firmly the salah in their life. We ita is zakah, and nothing can stop them from offering the charity that is due to the poor in our deen. Yaqafuna yawman. And what will they be feeling? Will they say that we are nur hambari ponchewe loge? Will they think like that? Will they, ha- will they lose their humility because of this nur? Will they think there is something in someone? No. Yakhafuna yoma. That nur will also put a fear in their heart. And they will fear that day. What day? Tataqallabu fihil qulub. Allahu Akbar. They will feel that day when their qalb will become overturned and their vision will become overturned. That qalb that has nur in it today, they will fear that day, the day of judgment, when their qalb can be overturned. This is deen, just this 
two ayahs, two, three ayahs, Surah Nur, verse 35, 36, 37, 38, you can understand all of Deen even if you want from these ayahs. Then, and then what will happen but on that day because they had the nur because they were in the masajid because they were in the world because when in the world they never left the zikr of Allah never left salah, never zakah that means they never left deen and they remained fearing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then what will happen Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward them Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward them for the best, with the best of rewards for what they did and then Allah Ta'ala will even وَيَزِيدَهُمْ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ Then Allah Ta'ala will even increase their reward مِنْ فَضْلِهِ from his puzzle. He'll give them even more than what they did. وَاللَّهُ يَرْزُكُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ بِغَيْرِ حِسَابٍ And Allah Ta'ala gives his risk to whomsoever he wants, provides and rewards whomsoever he wants beyond counting, beyond reckoning. So here, yes, although this ayah is oftentimes plucked out, and meant to use risk of this world because like I told you the Quran has umum these words have meanings more general than their specific context but actually here this is not referring to risk in this world it's talking about suave and akhira then you get mazid and akhira then Allah ta'ala wallahu yarzuku man yashahu bighayri hisab he bestows in the akhira he will bestow his bounties and blessings on whomsoever he wants bighayri hisab in an unimaginable uncountable way this is Allah subhanahu it starts all from that our creation our fitra the process of wahi nur al nur getting the hidayah doing amal on the hidayah getting that nur from Allah subhanahu wa getting it also in the masjid doing dhikr of Allah ta'ala's name praying salah reciting Quran being in the world being in the world in such a way that you retain that nur you retain that light even nothing can distract you from that dhikr from salah from zakat and then you always remain humble and fearful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then this is what will happen to that person on the day of judgment just the whole deen understood in four eyes of Quran. That they do amal on it. Hmm? That be a person who gets that nur, preserves that nur, lives on that nur, becomes nurun ala nur. That takes a lifetime of effort. Lifetime of effort. I kid you not that you can learn it, do it in a day. It will take a lifetime of effort. And a lifetime of effort is begun through just a moment of intention. That's the ease Allah Ta'ala has given. You can begin that lifetime of effort through just a moment's intention. That is what our Mashaikh say. That people should make intention for their tazkiyah. They should make intention near that they want this nur. They should make near that they want to learn the zikr. They should make near for this salah. They should make near for this zakah. They should make near for their humility. And they should try to live life to their best of ability. And if they slip and fall, they should renew that intention re-pledge themselves in that intention. This is the way of tazkiyah that the Mashaikh teach and this is based on the Qur'an al-Kareem and the Sunnah of Nabi al-Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Here when Allah subhanahu said that their trade and commerce won't distract them an-dhikrillahi wa-iqam salati this is a proof that dhikr and salah are two separate things. Dhikr itself is an ibadah and an amal in our deen because the vow comes from mughayrah it means what is before and after it or ghair ghair to one another then Allah Ta'ala makes mention of zakat after salah what is that? what's going on now? right? 
Why? Now trade, commerce, zakat, three things came up monetarily. Because before Ayah Nur, the zikr was of Jamal. And now the zikr is of Mal. What does it mean? There are two major things in this dunya that will veil the nur that a person has and prevent a person from getting more nur that they get from doing amal on what they know and that is either hubbi jamal or hubbi mal either their love for the beauties of this world or their love for the money of this world Allah Ta'ala in the beginning of Surah Nur revealed ahkam to protect a person from falling in love with the beauties of this world so they could get the nur that he mentioned in Ayatul Nur and now he's mentioning the tijara and bea and that you must give zakat to prevent a person from having materialistic love, greed, love for the material pursuits of wealth and wealth accumulation Profit maximization, what they teach you in Capitalism 101, Allah Ta'ala is trying to refute that also, so that the nur doesn't get obscured through love for the world. Two things that obscure the love is hubbi jamal and hubbi mal. So both of them Allah Ta'ala is answering over here. Verse number 39. وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا As far as those who disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala The ones who don't try to light the match on that nur The ones who don't even, even believe they've been given the olive oil inside <laughs> They deny all of it أَعْمَالُهُمْ <laughs> كَسَرَابٍ So their a'mal, the things that they do, they do do things Sarab means it's like a mirage a Mirage on a plane Mirage is that illusion, right? You walk and it looks like it's water, so you start walking towards it, but when you reach there, it's not water. But yet again, another mirage, because it's related to the horizon, right? Another one appears, so then you keep walking. You keep chasing one delusion after the other. Every time you arrive, the first thing, so first thing is mirage is a delusion. Second, that you chase it. Third is that when you reach it, another one is put in front of you, chase it. means you're so blinded by it, you don't realize, the person should realize, that oh, this is a delusion, I just walked one mile and it's not here. But the hirs, that for even the possibility that maybe I can get dunya from there, you keep moving. You keep moving. So their atma, what they do in this world is for a delusion. Because they did it for the sake of philanthropy. There's no such thing. You can do something for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have to do something for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is, has reality. To do something for the sake of philanthropy, that's a delusion, that's a mirage, it doesn't exist, that's a non-existent thing. Maybe what can exist is your name on a building, maybe that can exist. But otherwise the concept is a non-existent, illusory, delusional thing. The only concept that exists is to do something for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sincerely and truly. So then, continuing back to Quran al so this is the example of a mirage on a plane which the thirsty person thinks to be water until he reaches it and he finds that there is nothing there though right he finds that there is nothing there but he finds Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right what does he do وَوَجَدَ اللَّهَ إِنْدَهُ فَوَفَّاهُ hisaba. so he finds Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there and Allah ta'ala grants him his full due what does it mean? Wallahu suriyul hisab. Indeed, Allah Taala is swift in reckoning. What does it mean? You will chase it one after the other after the other, and then eventually you will die, and then you will find Allah Subhanahu Taala, and then Allah Subhanahu Taala will punish the disbelievers for what they used to do, and He will give them the full recompense for each and everything that He did. 
Wallahu sari'ul hisab And Allah Ta'ala will be swift in that punishment Now Allah Ta'ala is going to give a second uh, likeness to the disbelievers Either they are like layers of darkness in the deep fathomless ocean And that layers of darkness are covered with waves and waves over them And then there are clouds over those waves So this is layers of darkness on one another Zulumatun ba'dha fawka ba'ad as opposed to Nurun al Nur, what is this situation? Zulamatun ba'duha fawkabal, that there are layers and layers of darkness one upon the other, one over the other, darkness over darkness over darkness. Sasa ida akhraja yadahu, that if he was to outstretch his hand, extend his hand out, he would not even barely be able to see it. So dark that you couldn't see your own hand, right? And then what does Al say? So up there, what, what did Al-Sfanta say earlier? That Allah Ta'ala gave his nur to whom he swear wanted, right? What did Al-Sfanta say in verse number 35, Ayatul Nur? Yahdi That Allah Ta'ala gives nur to whomsoever he wants. And here what did Allah Ta'ala say? وَمَنْ لَمْ and that person for whom Allah Ta'ala does not make or does not send any nur, whomsoever Allah Ta'ala gives no nur, min nur, then that person will not have any nur at all. They'll be mahroom of that nur. All of that nur that we discussed, they'll become mahroom of that nur. So this is the likeness of the disbelievers that Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala has mentioned in Quran al-Karim so all of this then is to be related back to the ayat al-Nur <coughs> okay what's the difference between these two metaphors right so some commentators have said that they are actually two referring here to two types of disbelievers right the first type is the one who doesn't possess iman, right? So they keep getting disappointed from, they keep search, searching after dunya from stage to stage to stage, right? And they find nothing upon arrival. Eventually they will arrive at death, arrive at the day of judgment, and then they will be disappointed because they will not get any reward for the deeds they did. They did. So it means they did deeds, the amal they did was for whatever the mirage, whatever they had in their mind. And they won't get that. And on the day of judgment they will be disappointed again. So the first example is of those disbelievers who are fooled by the belief that they will be rewarded on the day of judgment. That's what they think. They actually will get rewarded. They say, well, if they'll, they'll, they'll talk, right? They will talk as if, they will say that if there is a God, well, I did do a lot of charity. So I'll be okay, right? That's what they think, right? That they will be rewarded if such a thing happens, like the Day of Judgment. So they will end up, they will be stunned. That there is a Day of Judgment, but second stunned was that, okay, I always thought that if there was one, I would be rewarded, and my deeds have come to nothing. My deeds have come to nothing. And the second example is those who are so deep under uh, 
darkness that they don't even believe in the chance of an akhirah at all. Maybe you could say agnostic and atheist if you wanted to use contemporary terms. So they have darkness over darkness. And look at the example, right? Some of you may know, right, how dark it is in the deep of the ocean. They used to have, I remember in America we went to an aquarium and they had a special exhibit of those fish who live at the deepest level of the oceans that humans have yet been able to go and get fish from because of the intense water pressure humans don't go all the way to the bottom right and it was pitch black that exhibit because they're used to the dark you had to keep it totally dark for them and if they see the darkness of the depth of the ocean is darker than the darkest night and so Allah is giving an example right and again there's something Nabiya could have never understood this right no, there was no scientific level of understanding at that time about how dark it is, how in, incredibly dark it is at these bottom depths of the ocean. And then, on, so there's so much here, then wave over wave, then cloud over cloud, darkness over darkness. So dark are they. That, that's the atheist. That's the oil has come to zero. Completely dark, completely dark, right? So they don't even believe in the possibility of an after, hereafter at all. They don't even think there's even a one in a billion chance that there's akhirah. That's how they've adopted atheism. They're so sure of it. They, summon, and they, they proclaim it openly and proudly and, and vigorously and argumentatively. That's the second example. In such a level of darkness. Right? And it's also a kanaya uh, when Allah says that they will never ever get a nur what does that mean? That in Akhra they will be in the darkness of Jahannam forever. There can never be any nur for them. That's going to be an even more infinitely tormenting and terrible darkness. Verses 41 to 55. Alam tara anna Allaha Don't you see, don't you reflect, don't you notice that every single being and creature, animate, inanimate, that is in the heavens and the earth, Glorifies Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala All creatures glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Even the birds with their wings spread out Each one Kullun kad alima salatahu wa tasbihuhu Each one knows its prayer and its tasbih Again that's part of Allah ta'ala's hidayah So now Allah ta'ala is saying what? There's Allah dina amanu There's Allah dina kafiru And there's non-insan As far as non-insan goes They also got a nur of hidayah And they're all on it there's no agnostic or atheist there. <laughs> they all know. Each and every one is doing tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa Each and every one knows its salah. Each and every one knows its tasbih, its method of um, glorifying Allah subhanahu wa Everyone knows its manner of place. Wallahu alimun bima yaf'adun. And Allah ta'ala is fully aware of each and every single thing that they do. Every single act that they do, Allah ta'ala knows it. And to Allah subhanahu wa belongs the dominion of the heavens and the earth. And to Allah subhanahu wa belongs the ultimate, penultimate return. His to Him is our final destination. That do you not see that Allah subhanahu propels and wafts the clouds in the sky and joins them and makes them into masses. And then you see rain emerging. Falling, rain emerging and falling down from within them. And Allah subhanahu wa makes mountainous clouds come down from the sky with hail in them, striking with that hail anyone whom He wills and diverting, protecting from that hail from anyone at will, diverting the hail from anyone 
whom he wills, the brilliance of his the brilliance of the flash of lightning can indeed uh, nearly taking away the light the sight. The brilliance of the lightning of the clouds nearly takes away the sight. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alternates Yukalabullah when the Hara Spanta alternates night and day. Surely there is a lesson in that. Inna fidalakan la ibra la ibratan li ul absar for the people of perception, for the people who can see. And Wallahu Khalaka kulla dabatim min ma and Allah Ta'ala created every animal creature from water. Again, scientific reality that nobody could have understood then that water is the essence of life. Every animal has some amount of water in it. And from that there are some animals that travel on uh, who, who crawl on their bellies or travel on their bellies who walk on their bellies and then there's some who walk on their two legs and then there's some who walk on four legs Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates whatever he so wills in the Allah halakulli shayin kadir indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is available is able is has power over each and every single thing alright so the point first is that every single thing in creation does the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows its salah even the birds with the wings spread out now why are the birds specified for mention over here right well, one reason was that the wings spread out was that the bird itself, with its wings spread out, the way it hovers and glides and flies, itself is a sign of Allah SWT. Right? Just even today, even those of us who fly in planes, we look at a bird, we're still amazed. It just takes off and it's just going like this, soaring and gliding. It itself is a sign of Allah SWT. So that was another ishara there, right? About the bird. Uh, and then here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned two things they know their salah and they know their tasbih right so what does it mean so some say that salah means dua because you find there's some hadith for example the Prophet says that all the fish in the sea all the creatures in the sea make dua for the talib ilm for the person who's seeking ilm so salah here can mean dua that they all so there are some and there are some hadith that say all the creation make dua for so and so and such and such right so that is their salah and tasbih means their general uh, praise and glorification to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some have said salah here means obedience, that they all obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like our salah is our submission, prostration, obedience. So they all submit and obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and also they all glorify and do the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And so for Allah ta'ala saying here, look in some, even all of the other creation have got that nur. All of the other creation knows what to do with that nur. Hmm? All of the other creation knows. Alima, all of it knows what to do with that nur. Is it just? It's just out of all the entire universe, the kuffar who have squandered that nur. The mu'mineen and have the nur. All of creation is using that nur. So why would we want to say no? Allah Taala is not just the kuffar. I'm going to invent another category and that's the non-practicing believer. Why do we want to add to the list? When Allah Ta'ala is trying to give in Quran this gift to us that we are on nur and all the creation is on that nur. It's just the kuffar who are there. Why do we want to say, no Allah Ta'ala, I can find a way despite notwithstanding my iman to put myself there and that's by not practicing this Quran? Not practicing the Sunnah of Nabi Karim Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
I can find a way of not being mahroom of this nur, and I can even gift wrap it and say, well, you know, may neem neem garam musalmana. Hmm? I'm an enlightened moderate. Look, I told you, it's Dajjal and Shaitan. They design it as the antithesis to Islam. Enlightened means manawar. Manawar, al nur. That is full deen. But these people invented another way to lose the nur and the delusion, the deception, they call it enlightened. Enlightened moderation means no, I, I, I want, I'm losing the nur. Not enlightened. <laughs> Not enlightened. Because you tell me the nur of Allah subhanahu was that moderate? Was that ayatul nur? Was that moderate? Was there some moderate meaning to ayatul nur? Is there a moderate number of creation which is doing the tasbih of the salah of Allah or all of creation? Is the darkness that Allah Ta'ala just mentioned in those examples over the kufr, was that a moderate darkness? Or was that layers of darkness over darkness? Just no moderate. Deen is intense. Life is intense. Time is intense. You have to learn to value it intensely. Live it intensely. Love Allah Ta'ala intensely. Fear Allah Ta'ala intensely. Have adab and akhlaq intensely. And deen is intense. There's no moderation. There is nothing that we have been told to do moderately. Oh yes, there is one thing. Earn the world moderately. A Shabbos, that's the one thing you do intensely? <laughs> yes, there was one thing that we were told to do moderately by Allah. Earn and live in the world moderately. Enjoy the lawful pleasures of the world moderately. That's the one thing we do intensely. Oh, what can be that? They've designed a system. Whatever they want to call it to you. They want to call it secularism, liberalism, progressivism, enlightened moderation. It's the antithesis, opposite. Rad, zid and rad of Islam. It's the zid and rad of Quran. Piece by piece it's been designed component by component. As the complete opposite of Islam. What you're supposed to be moderate in, you're intense in. And what you're supposed to be intense in, they want you to be moderate in. Can you make dua Allah Ta'ala give me a moderate amount of your nur? Can anybody want to make a dua like that? Hmm? Or do you want intensely? You want Allah Ta'ala, you are the being of nur. You're emanating your intense nur. I want you to drown me in that nur intensely. Or do you want to be moderate? Hmm? We should get real about our deen. We should get serious about our deen. It's the most perfect, beautiful Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nobody's asking us to be intense about something bad, something wrong, something fraud, something harmful. No. To be intense, for have intense feelings, intense love, intense obedience, intense submission, intense remembrance for that being who is Al-Rahman Al-Rahim, who has intense mercy for you, who is Al-Kareem, who is intensely generous for you, right? Who is As-Sakar, who intensely conceals and veils your sins. Who's Al-Razaq, who is intensely providing for you? So there's no moderation. There's no moderation like that, the way people have suggested it, the way they have suggested it. And here then Allah subhanahu wa also. Right? Allah has all of the power and all of the dominion and to such an Allah and to such an almighty, all powerful, all sovereign Allah will be each and every one of our return. 
Right. The rest of the, what we translated was pretty much self-explanatory. No real khas commentary that we need to give. Verse 46 onward. لَكَدْ أَلْزَلْنَا آيَةٍ مُبَيِّنَاتٍ Again you have that statement. Remember it came before Surah Nur. It's coming again after Surah Nur. That indeed we have revealed آيَاتٍ مُبَيِّنَاتٍ Clear verses of revelation. And also means clear and even مُبَيِّنَاتٍ can be translated clarifying signs. Mubayyan can also be clarifying. Clear and clarifying. Clear and clarifying. Like the Nurul Al Nur concept. Crystal clear and providing crystal clear clarity. Such ayat. That they're crystal clear and they provide crystal clear clarity. Wallahu yahdi man mustaqim. And Allah SWT guides whomsoever He wills to the straight path. So they say, there's some people that while they say, we believe in Allah SWT and the Messenger وسلم, and we obey. But after saying that, a portion of them turn away after saying that. وَمَا أُولَيْكَ And those, those, that group who turned away, they're not mu'mineen, they're not believers. So look, I mean, does this apply to us? That we listen to Quran and we say, yes, we agree, we like what we're reading, we like what we're hearing. Huh? And then we walk out, we say, oh, I'm not going to follow that, that's too intense for me, bro. Hmm? Huh? <laughs> dangerous, dangerous. Don't want anything in us to remotely resemble the adai of the kuffar Allah Ta'ala has mentioned. Not lifting this eye, applying it to us, because it doesn't make us unbelievers. But we don't want to have the laziness they have. We don't want to have the confusion in us that they have. We don't want to listen and not do the way they listened and didn't do. We don't want to hear and not obey the way they heard and not obeyed. We don't want to be anything like them. We want to be the opposite to that. That's what we want. So whenever you read or hear or recite an ayah of Quran that talks about kuffar, mushrikeen, munafikeen, that's the hidayah in it for you. That whatever they're being described like, I have to make sure I'm not like that. That's the hidayah in this for me. So what are they like? They say, we believe in Allah SWT. We believe in Sayyidina Rasulullah We are. We adatna. We obey. But then, after that, ثُمَّ يَتَوَلَّى but then a group, some of the people who speak like that, they turn away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They turn away from deen. Right? وَإِذَا دُعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ And when they are called to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam لَيَحْكُمَ بَيْنَهُمْ So that the Messenger sallallahu may judge and decide some matter that is between them. إِذَا فَرِيكُمْ مِنْهُمْ مُؤْرِذُونَ But then there is a group of them, a party of them, the مُؤْرِذُونَ that turn away, that become averse and turn away from this. وَإِنْ يَكُنْ لَهُمُ الْحَقُّ <coughs> that indeed if any of their rights or claim is due to them if there is a haq that is due to them they will come to claim that they will come to do that willingly, happily right? so then Allah that is there a sickness in their hearts or is it that they doubt and they are suspicious or or do they fear what do they fear? 
Yes. Do they fear? That Allah subhanahu will be unjust or wrong them in some way. Would Rasuluhu or Nabi Karim Sasam will be wrong to them in some way? Bal, no, no, they are the ones who are wrongdoers. Alright. Now, to understand uh, this, we have to. There is an incident. If you want to know the specific of this, right? Although you can understand it from the translation, but there was an incident that there was a munafik by the name of Mughira, and he had a dispute between Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu concerning a piece of land. First, they then agreed and reached a settlement between themselves as to how to distribute the land. Then, fine, that was done. Then Mughira asked Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu that please sell me your piece of land. But what, whatever you got in the settlement, the Sayyidina agreed later, okay, fine, I'll sell it to you. What was my share in the settlement that we mutually agreed upon with complete pleasure? I will sell it to you. So then he sold it to him. And then Mughira paid for it and they concluded the deal. Then another person came and told Mughira that the sand, the land that Sayyidina al sold you is not farmland, it's not cultivatable, it's barren. It's salty, it's useless, it's futile, right? So the Mughira came back then to say, and said, okay, I want to cancel the deal. I want to revoke that sale and I want to return the price to you. I want you to refund the price to me. So Sayyidina al told him that no, I won't be able to do that, right? Uh, then Sayyidina offered him that, okay, let's go to the Prophet and let's see what he decides, right? She said, let, let, let me go to my Nabi, I'll take you with me. And how he'll decide whatever is fair and best. It's a bit complicated situation now. You had a certain expectation, but I didn't market it as such. The deal's been concluded. I needed the money. I used it elsewhere. I can't give you the money back, right? And I sold it because I don't really need the land. But Mughir felt it no. But when I bought the land, I didn't know it was like that. But the problem, so up till now, there's no real problem, right? Problem happens that when Sayyidina Ali Radhanal told him, let's go to the palace of some Mughir refused. He said, no, I don't want to go to the Prophet So here Allah Ta'ala is saying, that, look, no, when you refer something to the decree of Allah's Prophet and the Prophet you won't be wronged. Now this is a broader lesson, right? A broader lesson. And look, somebody's guilty, so they want to go to Islamic court. Right? Allah Ta'ala is saying, no, if you refer anything, I mean, this is an ayah that shows, I mean, if Sharia was properly enacted, and I accept that there are many improper ways that people have tried to enact it, but if it was properly enacted, then there would be absolute fairness and justice and no one would have anything to fear from that legal process. Why? Because Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet are completely just. Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala and the Prophet are completely just. Alright? And this is a general thing that the Munafiqeen had with, you know, refusing to accept the judgment of the Prophet However, like Allah said, but when there's, there was a haq due to them, when they were in the right and they knew the Prophet then they would show up, right? And they would have the Prophet adjudicate between them and a party so that they would get their haq. So the Prophet that is now key ayah for us. So this not wanting Sharia to judge over you, this not wanting Allah Ta'ala's hukum and the Prophet's sunnah to judge over you, this could happen. Why? Either because we have a disease in our hearts, or is it because we have doubts and skepticisms? Or Nauzubillah, do we think Allah Ta'ala's laws and the Prophet Sunnah are unfair and unjust? So these are the three reasons why a person 
would not present themselves for Sharia. That's what Allah is mentioning in Quran. So again, we don't want to have any of those things. We want to be the opposite of this. We don't want illnesses in our heart. We don't want to have doubts and suspicions about is Islam really correct or is Islam really the best or is Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet's law really the best law for me. We don't want to have doubts like that. Right? Because we're believers. And Allah Ta'ala says that no, that there's it, people who think like that, they themselves are zalimun. Allah Ta'ala will never do zalim on anyone. So now look at contrasting this to the believers. That when the, what do the believers say when they are called to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to judge between them? They simply say what? That we just come and we hear and we obey. That's it. The very famous words of Sahaba Ikram that Allah ta'ala has put in Quran. What do they say? We hear and we obey. What does that mean? That what is our approach and attitude towards Islamic law? Hear and obey. Not research, reflect, analyze, decide if I agree, and that if I agree and it's best for me in my life in this world, then obey. No. I hear and obey. You just have to say, call Allah Ta'ala blank and I obey. You just have to say, Qala Rasulullah blank and I obey. That's how a mu'min should say. That's how we should be. So for these people, They will get success in this world. Success in the Akhirah. And that person who <coughs> obeys Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obeys the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that these people and they, and they don't disobey that these people will be fa'izun these people will be the most successful the most joyous falah and foes falah you could translate as success and fa'izun you could say that they will be victorious they will be victorious so they are, they have khashiya, they have taqwa, they fear Allah, they revere Allah. Or taqwa, you can say that they don't disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They will be fa'izun, they will be victorious. So Allah ta'ala has promised falah and foes with this attitude of hear and obey. So why would we want to leave the hear and obey attitude when Allah ta'ala has promised success and victory with such an attitude? Verse 30 box. Okay. This is that they swear oaths in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they will go forth if you command them, Prophet. So say go say to them Nabi Kareem sallallahu that don't swear. Ta'udumarufa that it's obedience what counts. It's not your oaths that the deen wants. It's your ta. Your ta'at means your obedience. Marufa it's your obedience that counts. Indeed Allah Ta'ala is well aware and all aware of everything that you do. That say to them, Nabi Allah, you must obey Allah. And you have to obey Sayyidina Rasulullah So when people say, when you say something to them about hadith, they ask you, well where is it in Quran? Just say, oh, where in Quran? Surah 24 verse 54. Every single hadith is in Quran. Every single authentic hadith is in Quran. 
all hadith are in Surah 2454. Because Allah Ta'ala said to obey the Messenger. These are two separate distinct things. Again, it's a feature of Arabic language. Wow, this letter particle that comes from it called Mughayra. What is before it is ghair, what is after is ghair. What is before it is something, what is after is the conjunctive particle and means two separate apples and oranges. Oranges are something different. Apples are something different. Allah obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa and discreetly separate distinct from that is another thing you have to do you have to obey Sayyidina Rasulullah obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala follow us in Quran obey Nabi follow the hadith of the Prophet and then both of these two things point to other things which is an ayah we did for you before that you have to follow Khulafai Rashidun, follow Sahaba, follow the Ulama, follow the Uliya. It's all in Quran and Hadith, those things, all of those things. But if you don't do this, if you turn your back on this, if you spurn this, فَإِنَّمَا عَلَيْهِ مَا humila. So Allah Ta'ala first tells the Prophet that when they don't obey, that O Nabiyyakism on you is only, your only obligation is your duty. To convey it, and what was their obligation was what they were, what was their duty, which was to follow it, which was to listen, right? When this is another proof. This one letter is going to prove to you hadith. It should have been that if you obey both Allah Taala and the Prophet right? But here singular. And if you obey him, it means that if you obey him, parentheses, the Prophet Sallallahu you will be rightly guided. But it is not, no duty is incumbent on the Prophet Sallallahu except simply, clearly, manifestingly, communicating and delivering the message to you. Allah subhanahu wa promised to us if you believe in the good deeds that he will definitely make you the inheritors and heirs on earth as Allah Ta'ala made those who were before you heirs and inheritors on earth and Allah Ta'ala will establish deen Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will establish <coughs> and grant them strength in the deen and Allah subhanahu will make them firm and steadfast and established on their deen that deen that Allah Ta'ala has chosen and preferred for them and then after that after that uh, that will change their fear into security their khawf will become aman and as if, so if you, are in a, you start obeying Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala and you have iman, you do good deeds sometimes you may be threatened Sometimes there may be some difficulty that comes in your life. You may be teased, you may be taunted, maybe family opposition, public opposition. You will go through a difficult initial period when you have iman and amal and obedience. But then Allah Ta'ala says that no, but Allah Ta'ala, if you stick at it, then Allah Ta'ala will make you firm in deen. And that is the deen that Allah Ta'ala has preferred and loves for you. And then, whether you bandilanna nuhum min ba'di khawfihim amna, 
that Allah Ta'ala will change that state of khawf and fear and distress that you are in and put you in a state of aman and a state of peace and tranquility and security. Ya'budunani and <coughs> that these people they will they not these or they they will worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, they will do about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. La yushrikuna bi shay'a and they will not associate any partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa man ba'da dalik and anyone who denies after that fa'ulakumul fasikun they indeed are transgressors and disobedient waqimus salatu wa atum zakat you should establish the salah you should offer your zakah wa atiul rasul and here it comes singly now before it came together wa atiullah wa atiul rasul if a person still didn't understand, here Allah Ta'ala singles it out. Pray salah, or pray salah, pay zakah, follow Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi so that Allah Ta'ala's mercy may depend on you. So if anybody asks you, oh it's only sunnah, tell them, oh yeah, look at Surah 24 verse 56, Allah Ta'ala said we have to follow that sunnah. <laughs> We've been commanded in the Quran by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to obey that sunnah. And what level that's right there in the same line as salah as zakah. Is salah fard? Is zakah fard? What you think is going to be put in their company? Something that's completely nafil, you never have to do it? In the same sentence? No. No. وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ وَأَعْطُوا الزَّكَاةِ so that Allah Ta'ala's mercy may come to you. Don't ever think that the, the, those who disbelieve or those who deny, don't ever view them as obstacles. How does he translate this? Don't think they're able to frustrate Allah Ta'ala's plan on earth. Don't view them as obstacles to Allah Ta'ala's plan on earth. But instead their abode is the fire of Jahannam. Indeed it is an evil ending, a terrible abode to end. Or you can believe the... This also is pretty much self-explanatory. Right? 58. Or you believe your slaves and your children who have not yet come of age must seek permission to enter your room on three occasions. This is something I discussed earlier, so we can just translate before the Fajr Salah, before the dawn prayer, when you're removing your clothes, right? And when, when you remove your clothes due to the midday heat, and after the evening prayer, these are the three times of privacy for you. Outside of these, there is no blame on you or on them going around attending to one another. It means that children can come and go freely, right? But in these three times, even they should also knock or seek permission 59 when your children when the children amongst you come of age when they reach maturity then let them ask permission to enter in this manner does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala thus does Allah ta'ala make manifest to you his verses of revelation and clarify his signs indeed Allah subhanahu wa is all knowing and all wise alright I think this is simple enough. 16. So I've done this for you before. So those women, as for the, those women who are beyond the age, right, it can mean beyond the age of marriage, 
It can mean beyond the age of childbearing. What it means is beyond the age of physical lust, either feeling it or being the object of it. Right? For those of them, فَلَيْسَ عَلَيْهِنَّ junah, So there is no blame on them, no harm on them. Literally, if they take off their clothes, but it means obviously they take out their outer garment or cloak, right? That such that they do not reveal and expose their beauty. Alright. And if they would refrain even from that, taking off their jilbab, that would be better for them. Without Samir Alim, indeed, Allah Ta'ala is all hearing, all knowing. Verses 61. Onward, there is no harm for the blind. Okay. This is, there, it's no harm means it's not forbidden. Right? It's not prohibited for the blind, for the lame, for the sick. Nor yet to yourself that you should eat in your own homes. Or the houses of your fathers, your mothers, your brothers, your sisters, your paternal uncles, your paternal aunts, your maternal uncles, your maternal aunts or those whose keys are in your possession, or your friends. What does it mean? It's talking about whose home you can go and eat in without asking for permission, right? You can do all of that. You are not forbidden to eat altogether, or separately. But when you enter houses, invoke peace, and you say salam upon each other with a greeting from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, blessed and wholesome. So what is this? That when you come, فَسَلِّمُوا عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِكِمْ فَسَلِّمُوا عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِكُمْ تَحِيَّةً مِنْ إِنْدِ اللَّهِ مُبَارَكَةً تَيِّبًا So this is very important that a lot of us don't do this, that we say salam, assalamu alaikum is something that you have to say. Allah Ta'ala wants you to get the barakat. Allah Ta'ala is saying it's a greeting from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. تَحِيَّةً مِنْ إِنْدِ It's a greeting, a way and form of greeting that has been sent down from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the nature of that greeting is that Mubarakatan tayyibatan It is blessed and pure It will bring barakah and purity To the people who greet one another with that greeting And a lot of us are very lazy with our own parents or children or siblings or you know. So when you see your own brother you say hey what's up When you see an elder you say assalamu alaikum Right? But no Allah wants it When your own brother, your own sister, everyone all of these close people who Allah Ta'ala is saying you're so intimate with them you can freely go on their homes and come and go, right? But when you go you must say Assalamu Alaikum. So you should revive that teaching of Quran al Karim in your life and say the greeting of Salam properly. That's that Allah wants to make clear and manifest his verses and his signs to you so that you may reflect and that you may gain understanding. Okay. 62 Indeed those believers The believers who believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And put this way Innama This is Kalimatul Hasr Only those are believers who are those who believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and when they are with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and they are in a manner that brings them together in a collective effort 
لم يذهبوا then they do not leave and depart حتى يستأذنوا حتى يستأذنوه until they ask him the Prophet for permission إن الذين يستأذن إن الذين يستأذنونك أولئك الذين يؤمنون بالله ورسوله indeed those who ask your permission Prophet they are the ones who truly believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala فإذا استأذنوك and when they ask you permission <coughs> when they ask you leave or permission to do some to attend to some business or matters or affairs of theirs then Allah is telling the Prophet Quran that you can give permission to whoever you want men home from them and you Prophet should make forgiveness for them seek, forgive, seek their forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving, all merciful that you should not call the Prophet address the Prophet in the same yani informal way that you call on each other that Allah indeed knows those of you who are trying to slip away, seeking exemption. Now look, that those who oppose, <coughs> those yukhalifuna an amrihi, those who oppose the amr, the command, he of him, of the Prophet ﷺ, you should warn them. You should warn those who obey, dis- disobey, oppose the command of the Prophet ﷺ. Why? What will happen? Antusibahum fitna. Lest a fitna befall them, a trial before them. Oh, you see, bahum adabun alim. Or a painful punishment will strike them. So another verse, same surah, verse 63. Showing you why we have to obey the sunnah and hadith and life and teachings of Nabi Kareem ﷺ. And the warning that Allah Ta'ala is giving us in Quran that either a fitna will fall upon us, some trial, test, tribulation, difficulty, adversity in our life, or adabun alim, that's in the next life, a painful punishment. And this ayah is about believers. Now before I would say it's about kufra, I'm not using it, but don't be like them. This ayah is about believers. This passage, 62-63, is Allah Ta'ala making it distinct that who are really the believers. This should be 100% applied to believers. Those believers who do not follow the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah are being told in Quran that they should take heed and start obeying him lest a fitna fall upon them in this world and azabul alim can befall them in the akhir. This is Quran al-Kareem. This is Allah al-Azim mentioning this what should be our attitude towards Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa The original revelation of this is, due to, is the Battle of Khandak. And when the digging was taking place, the Munafiqeen were participating very reluctantly in that slip away, seeking exemption. They were trying to slip because they didn't have Iman. What did they care? Why would they want to dig this trench and do hard manual labor? So they were trying to slip away, seeking exemption. So here now Allah Ta'ala is making it clear who are the Mu'maneen and who are the Munafiqeen. And the Munafiqeen are the ones who kind of cut corners. They do a little bit and they slip away. You know, you may, if you ever have been working in any experience, see this. 
You put five people to the task, you go upstairs, you come back 20 minutes later, two are doing the task, three are talking. Yes? <laughs> they slip away, right? So this, this was the original incident of that. As opposed to the Sahaba Ikram, the Sahaba Ikram, when they were digging, first of all, Allah Ta'ala says, it's up to you, Prophet You want to give them permission to leave or not? It's your choice, remember? Whoever you want, shit to whoever you want. And if they ask for some matter, maybe it was some personal matter, they had to attend to their mother, they had to get something for their wife, they had to answer the cause of nature, or whatever it was, Allah Ta'ala said the Prophet that it's up to you if you want to let them go, if you permit them to leave, and you should seek forgiveness for them. What does this mean? Right? If they're going due to some affair of theirs, what it means is, remember this was a collective effort, right? I said the joint effort. So it means whenever there's a collective need of this ummah, whenever there's a collective effort going on, whenever there's a collective khidmat of deen going on, and some person leaves even for legitimate reason, they leave even because the emir of that khidmat gave them permission to leave, even then they should make istighfar to Allah Ta'ala. I thought this was such an important work of deen, I ask your forgiveness and I had to slip away from it for a bit of time to do my work before I could come back. This is the adab Allah Ta'ala is teaching in Qur'an. How important collective works of deen are. So this is istimai amal. How important collective works of deen are. Right? Amal and jami'. Alright. And now finally the last ayah for of Surah Nur and the last ayah for today. Allah inna lillahi ma fis samawati wal ard. So before Nur is samawati wal ard. Right? Here another aspect of Allah Ta'ala. Lillah, Lam here comes for Tamlik, means to Allah Ta'ala exclusively belongs power, control, dominion, the right to command every single thing that is in the Samawat and the Ard. And indeed, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala knows Ma'antum Alayh, the condition upon which you are on. He knows exactly what your state is, He knows what you are about and up to. And that day when you will be returned to Allah, that day when Allah, <coughs> on that day when they shall return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah ta'ala will inform each and every one of them bima about each and every single thing that they used to do. And indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has all knowledge over each and every single thing. Wa akhir of that one. And alhamdulillah, hidam bin alameen. Subhanallah bin ala wahab Allahumma salli ala sinuna Muhammad wa ala ala sinuna Muhammad wa mabadik wa sallam. Rabbana zalamna anfusana wa illam takfir lana wa tarhamna lanakunanna minal khasireen. Ya Allah, ya Rabbi Kareem, your nur samawati wal ard. Ya Allah, we are the most needy of that nur. We have fallen to every darkness and pit. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we have the darkness of our sins, the darkness of our nafs, the darkness of the whisperings of shaitan the darkness of the society around us Ya Allah we are living in an age of fitna and fasad an age of fisk and fujur Ya Rabbi Kareem we want you to put the nur of your hidayah into our kalb Ya Allah put the nur of your hidayah into our sadr Ya Allah we want to have our hearts illuminated by this deen Ya Allah put the nur of Quran into our heart put the nur of love for you in our heart put the nur of fear for you in our heart Ya Rabbi Kareem put the nur of following the nur of nabuat 
in our heart. Yalla, we want to follow Nabi Kareem Sallallahu We want to obey you. We want to obey him. We want to be true to you. To be true to him. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Make us amongst the true mu'mineen. Make us amongst the true mu'mineen. Ya Allah, you said in Quran Al-Kareem that you give hidayah to that nur to whomsoever you will. Man yasha. Ya Allah, we ask that on this day that you will that nur for us. That you will that hidayah for us. Ya Allah, in the barakah of the surah nur that we recited and studied. In the barakah of your ayat that we have read and learned. Ya Allah, we ask that you manifest those teachings in our life. Manifest those teachings in our heart. Enlighten our heart with the true nur of the true deen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. And Ya Allah, we ask that you protect us from those zulamat that you mentioned in Surah Nur. Protect us from Hubbi Jamal. Protect us from the darkness and the filth of improper, inappropriate, immodest love and attraction. Ya Allah, take out all the unlawful loves from our heart. Take out all the unlawful lusts from our heart. Ya Allah, let us learn to value one another for our hearts and our spirits. Ya Allah, let us be less focused on the material, more focused on the spiritual. Ya Allah, let us learn to love your beauty, the beauty of Quran, the beauty of Nabi alayhi salam, the beauty of his sunnah, the beauty of his sahaba, the beauty of his de- of our deen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. And Ya Allah, we ask that you enable each and every one of us to do amal, to practice all of the ahkam and surah nur, all of the ahkam in Quran, all of the rules and sunnah, all of the laws in our deen. Ya Allah, enable us to lower our gaze. Ya Allah, we are living in that day and age in which is the most difficult to lower our gaze. Ya Allah, we ask that you attract us to you in such a way that we no longer feel attraction to this world. Allure us to you in such a way that we no longer feel allure for this world. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask the women who are here and the women that we know and that you bless all of the women of this ummah, Ya Allah, to have the haya that you wish them to have, to have the taqwa that you wish them to have, to wear the libas that you wish them to wear. Ya Allah, make them strong, Ya Allah. Give them their own strength, Ya Allah. Give them an inner resolve, Ya Allah. Open their hearts to the beauty of khimar, the beauty of jilbab, the beauty of niqab. Ya Allah, soften the hearts of the menfolk in their family. Soften the hearts of all of their friends and family and colleagues. Incline their heart towards deen. Make it easy for them, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, if they face any oppression, any persecution, any prosecution, Ya Allah, make them strong, make them steadfast. As you promised in Quran, take us out of that khawf and bring us into aman, Ya Allah. We want the aman that you bestow upon us. We don't want any aman that we can seek for ourselves. Ya Allah, the aman that you bestow on us will surely be lasting and everlasting. Ya Allah, bring us into sanctity, bring us into safety, bring us into security. And Ya Allah, Rabbi Kareem, we seek refuge in you from hubbi mal. Take out the extraneous love for wealth in our heart. Take out the greed for this world from our heart. Take out materialism from our heart. Let us be simple. Let us be pure. Let us be true. Put in our heart a compassion for the poor and the needy. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Let us feel the pain of the poor and needy just like you enabled us to feel their hunger and thirst in Ramadan. Let us feel each and every pain that they have. Let us not be settled until we have relieved their pain, alleviated their pain, helped them in their pain. And Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, just like you said in Quran, that your nur will be in those masajid that are made for you and wherein your name is remembered. Your salah
salah is prayed, your Quran is recited, Ya Allah, always keep our hearts connected to such masajid, always keep our hearts connected to your name, and the remembrance of your name, and the recitation of your Quran, and the prayer of salah, and the paying of zakah, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, always keep us connected to everything that will connect us to your nur, and disconnect us from everything that will disconnect us from your nur, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Alhamdulillahimeen, Rabbana Takabal Minna Innaka Anta Sameel Adeem, Watubu Alayna Innaka Anta Tawabu Rahim, Wasallallahu Ta'ala Ala Habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad, Wala Alihi Wa Ashabihi Ajmaeen, Birahmatika Ya Alhamdulillahimeen.